0: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Life happens, right? Things happen, and it makes it so we can't always, you know, expect things to go the way you would have wanted them to go. Uh... Kids might have to move home. Economic situations, the degree that they were trying to obtain um, wasn't a degree necessarily that they could make the money they need to make. Uh, Other issues, medical issues, health issues, psychological issues, there's a, a lot of reasons why we may need to look to go back home. And so one of the things I would uh, suggest, I think, to all of us is, A, let's all judge a lot less those situations, because we don't know why our neighbor's kids are still living at home. But one of the things I know that we can do is, and and I'm noticing it with my own children, I have uh, six kids, a daughter and five boys. And the daughters, she went to school, got married, moved on, has a house, doing her thing. Growing in a healthy way, my all my kids are are at it they 're out doing the things that they 're supposed to do, trying to figure out life. One is away at college um, and one just got home from an LDS mission. But what is amazing to me is i is the level of parenting that you still are doing with these kids as even as you 've thought you launched them, you know I think we a lot of us think that once we just kind of shoot them out into the world. They're not going to boomerang back. But the reality is my role as a father doesn't end. I can keep teaching more and more and giving other ideas and other information. And I'm just grateful that they're willing to come back to ask for help, for advice, for insight, because it allows me to keep influencing them. And one of the things I'm realizing is, oh boy, I wish I had maybe taught them some more things when they were younger. I wish I had set some better expectations about life and how things work when they were younger. So remember that um, if, if you don't teach them younger, you're going to get a chance probably to teach them when they're older. And so maybe let's spend more time trying to empower our kids. I always just think of the... The birds that like take their little cute little baby bird and just push them out of the nest, and that bird better be ready to fly because it's it's time to fly. Um, and there's a difference between I think abandoning our kids and just throwing them out into the world and hoping they can make it, versus truly empowering them. So what if we all spend a little more time with our our kids, making sure that they have the skills to to uh, to work that they have a work ethic. So they they understand that they have to get up every day and go make something happen to to not just let them only have dreams, but also have the skills to make a dream become a reality because they know how to make a plan. They know how to set a goal. They know how to accomplish a goal. And um, there's a lot of tools. There's a lot of resources, I think, for all of us to be able to teach these things to our kids. There are a million books. One of the things I, I've also just noticed in my own life with my own family is a lot of us keep shooting for perfection when really a little progress is all we need. We don't need to have the highest degree of completion of everything we do when sometimes all we need is some progress on a goal. We, we don't need to um, have the perfect studio setup. I've been talking to my son about. What we need is just a doable, actionable setup that would make it so my son could start creating his music. And when we get too caught up in the perfection of wanting the perfect studio, it might be actually just a way to have an impediment from risking and doing what we need to do. Every single one of us have goals and dreams that uh, that that we want to accomplish. But be careful, because when you think... Um, when you think that it's just easy to go live on your own, it's not. It's a, it's overwhelming for some of these kids to to know how to do it, to see how to do it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. And so there are benefits of like going to school or, in our case, having our son go on a mission where we know he can do it on his own. He came home after two years and he... He had gained weight, he was healthy, he knew how to exercise, he knew how to take care of himself, he still had his teeth, which meant he brushed his teeth regularly, you know, all these things we were worried about, he could handle. Then we just take him to the next level and take him to the next level. I think each and every one of us as parents, it's it's upon us to empower our, ch- our child, not just to abandon them, not just to send them on their way, but make sure that inside of each of our kids is the power to thrive and to succeed. And um, I think however we go about doing that when they're younger will influence their abilities as they're older. And I think each and every one of us should make sure that our kids have the social skills they need, the emotional skills and management skills they need to succeed in life. That they have the intellectual abilities, that they've either learned their kid their gifts and their talents, and they're doing something toward what they're passionate and have gifts and talents around, or that they're on the you know on their way to discover those things. I think we need to make sure they're spiritually solid and strong, that they have some connection to a higher power, and they know how to connect into that power to find peace when uh, days and times get difficult. Um, I don't think we should just hope they just get married. <laughs> and then they're out of your hair. I mean, you know how many times I work with people that just got married thinking that was the answer, but they didn't have any skills or tools or abilities or insight, and then they're supposed to go figure it all out with their spouse. I also don't think that we should avoid marriage either. We have way too many, I think, that are just afraid to go marry because it's different and it's hard. And I think a lot of that is because of us We parents, we're the ones that have taught them that marriage is dangerous and scary and not quite what you thought it should be. So parents, we can do better. And uh, when, when our children do need to come home, let's sit down, let's make a plan, knowing the plan will change, but let's get real and let's be talking about it and let's be sharing your expectations, sharing your concerns and hearing their concerns. Let's give them enough freedom, but let's also... Give him some accountability as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And at work, you uh, you're stressed. You don't know what it is, man. You you feel so anxious, but you've never thought you were anxious. You know, life was you could handle stuff, but you feel like you're just losing it. What's going on with you? You may just uh, you may just be suffering from this this focus issue that Rasmus was talking about. The pressure starting to mount. So I, I put together a little list of some hidden signs that may indicate that y- you may have a little anxiety, a little anxiousness going on board, right? It doesn't mean, and I don't love the label of, yeah, you're just anxious, It's, um, but you're feeling something going on. So here's some examples, and by the way, you'll notice it might simply mean to... You can't, You maybe don't have anxiety, but you just can't focus. There's too much stuff going on, so we need to learn to prioritize and, and figure out what we can say no to. One sign is that you tend to procrastinate things. If you put a lot of important things off, you know, everybody puts something off in their lives, but, and we delay, we procrastinate, but procrastination may give you the appearance uh, that you're working, but really what you're always doing is just thinking about what you need to do. So, we, you know, we we just think, I'll just delay it. I'll just keep delaying it. Um, if you keep procrastinating, it might be a sign that you're getting caught up in this too much. You're being overwhelmed by it. And it's easier to just put it out, uh, ignore it, jump it, skip it instead of dealing with it. The fix would be instead of avoiding it or postponing it or, you know, moving and jibing and doing what you can to not have to deal with it, maybe just set a deadline and, and choose to get it done. Get that one thing done. Find the one thing that you need to get done today, and let's just get it done and not stop till we get that thing done. That would demand, though, right, that you have a priority, that you know what your one thing is. Another thing that, that tends to probably induce a lot of anxiety in us is this indecision, because we maybe don't know what's most important and everything in this world seems important because it came over the phone and it did beep when I when I received the message so obviously it's important um the probably the problem is it's not always important just because it beeps you know that's just something you set on your phone um an alert or some some type of warning Decisions are hard for a lot of us. Um, it's uh, we have self doubt. We have a lot of overwhelm because we have so much to get done. We've made mistakes in the past, so our confidence is down. Anxious people, or uh, what I call uh, Ferraris in a world full of Chevys, about twenty percent of people are you know more high sensitive, more highly tuned, more almost in a way high performance. That they they might actually overthink everything. They overdo everything. They're overamped. On it. So, one of the fixes is simply to find ways to anticipate how you can, you know, maybe stay ahead a little bit ahead of some of these issues. Uh, Maybe find ways to simplify, find ways to not make everything so difficult. Another sign that you have a a little bit of anxiety on board might be the fact that you overcomplicate everything. Everything you add so much more value to. And it's great. That's one of your gifts is to add value, but you don't need to add value to everything. Sometimes it's okay to just let it be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Maybe you don't need to perfect it by cutting off the crust. Well, the kids won't eat it. Well, then they'll learn to deal with the crust one way or another. But maybe what we could do is not make everything harder for everyone. Or as we talked about last week, always seeking perfection. Another thing we tend to do is just make up stories. We just have lots of stories about why we don't do what we do, why we aren't getting the results we need, why things aren't happening. And if you tell a lot of stories instead of getting a lot of results, odds are you might you might be a little anxious. So if you are telling stories, if you sense you're a perfectionist if you tend to complicate and make things harder than they need to be, if you feel indecisive and you procrastinate a lot, my friend, you may have a little battle with anxiety. Doesn't mean you need to go get medicine, doesn't mean you need to go to a doctor. What it does mean is you might want to start learning some resiliency skills, learning some mindfulness, learning to be in the moment, learning to be present, learning to say no, learning to find what your yeses are. Just uh, insight from your uh, neighborhood coach. In the United States, workers work amongst the longest, most extreme, and most irregular hours anywhere. Have uh, they? They don't have necessarily. Um The luxuries that you would think that we might have in a first world country and in in the United States where we tend to lead out in some of these things, you know, uh, we do have sick days, but many don't. Right. There's no guarantee of that, no guarantee of paid vacation or family leave. All of these uh, points uh, lead up to the fact that uh, many of us may be losing our health in order to gain a paycheck. And here to talk about it is Jeffrey Pfeffer. He is the author of the book, Dying for a Paycheck. And uh, he decided to impact, investigate the impact of management on employee health and company performance. And uh, some of the research he has found is quite surprising. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Are people really dying because of their paycheck? Is it, is it actually costing us our health?
2: Well, no, they're not literally dying because of their paycheck, but they're certainly dying because of their work environments. Um, Two colleagues and I have a paper published in the peer-reviewed journal Management Science in which we estimate about 120,000 excess deaths annually in the United States, about $190 billion in excess costs. And when I tell, give these numbers to my friends in the human resource consulting business, they say the numbers are way off. They're much too low. Really? Um, there's, a, there's an article in China uh, that talks about a million people a year in China dying from, um, from overwork. Oh, so, wow. yes, the workplace is, in fact, a public health crisis.
0: Wow. And it's, um, again, it, it actually even, it's, it's one of the top five, the fifth leading cause of death, according to your research
2: that 's right a, well that 's not according to my research. If you take one hundred and twenty thousand deaths, which is what we our research estimates and and then look at the, um, the mortality tables um, from the you know from the from the, the United States publishes, uh, this is the fifth leading cause of death. The workplace is the fifth leading cause of death. It is higher than alzheimer 's or kidney disease.
0: Mm. What are the factors that uh, that make up this? The, the pain that it's causing on us, what is it that it's doing to our bodies um, and and the, and the stress it's creating?
2: Well, it is creating stress. stress is very unhealthful. Unhealthful. you in your in your lead in, you mentioned one factor, which is the long hours and and by the way, in today's world, they're not only long hours but for many people in retail and banking and hospitality and restaurants, they're also irregular hours mm. because with all this fancy scheduling software. Uh, companies don't want to have extra workers there, uh, access to what would be the predicted demand. And so people often find out their schedules at the last minute, um, and, and their work hours vary from week to week, therefore their income varies from week to week. So that's... The second issue, which is economic insecurity. Yeah. Um, economic insecurity is, is is varying schedules and also layoffs. Layoffs have become the kind of a normal way of doing business today. Uh, another factor is uh, the absence of job control. Many people are being micromanaged, and that uh, most people would find that stressful. And another issue is work-family conflict, um, where we are not getting the benefits you talk about. The absence of family leave. Uh, many people don't get paid time off. Many uh, employers are not very accommodating of their employees' needs to deal with elders or children. And, and so there is, uh, that, that's another source of stress which has been shown to affect health. I mean, frankly, the most surprising thing about this book is that when you look at the research, the epidemiological evidence is actually quite extensive, well more than 700 studies, many of them going wow. back decades on the health effects of these work environments.
0: That is amazing. And so what is it? How did we get here? I mean, it seems like uh, these organizations would, would be realizing that they're, they're just paying higher costs and they have lower engagement. They have all of these other uh, issues going on because of, of how they're working their employees.
2: Well, that's certainly right. I mean, one of the things, not surprisingly, when people are sick, they're not as productive. Yeah. And also, when people when people are stressed, they quit. Um, so I think we got here, you know, it's, it's hard for me to actually, that's one of the things I did not look at is how we got here, or maybe even how we're going to get out of this place. But uh, But certainly, I think one huge change that has occurred over the last several decades in the United States and really around the world is how leaders of organizations think about their role i mean forty fifty years ago um, leaders thought of themselves as stewards balancing the interests of shareholders employees the customers, and the community. And as we've moved to an emphasis on just shareholder value and shareholders as the only constituency that matters, I think employee well-being has probably fallen by the wayside. Right. And also, of course, there's more competition than there was 40 or 50 years ago with the opening of the world economy to competition now from India and China and the global labor market. Um, I think many people see a... Um, you know, extra competitive pressure. And so they've decided to uh, basically ratchet up the pressure on the workforce.
0: Yeah. Well, and and then, you know, they some companies feel good then, I guess, giving you health benefits. But if the health benefits are being used to mitigate all the other problems from working in the organization, it's kind of a lose-lose. It
2: is, it is very much a lose-lose. And, of course, health benefits – According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, the percentage of companies offering health insurance in the United States has gone down, and more importantly than that, the cost shift—the cost shifting has been quite dramatic. As um, as companies have shifted more of the premium cost to employees, um, deductibles have gone up, um, and uh, co-payments have gone up. So that, um, according to Gallup. Uh, Gallup has a survey that says one-third of the U.S. population replies in the affirmative to the question, have you had to postpone either getting medical care or filling a prescription because of cost? That's one-third. Now, by the, of course, that number is smaller for the people with health insurance, but even for the people with health insurance, a, 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 an astonishingly high, at least to me, fraction of people mm. cannot access medical care because of cost.
0: Yeah. Uh, we're speaking and with course,
2: and of course no health care means no health
0: no right right and 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 yet you still have the stress to make ends meet and you still have to go to your job and you might even love your job and being be stressed out of your mind doing your job yep I mean, that's that's there's, I guess, part of the irony of this. Uh, we're speaking with Jeffrey Pfeffer. He's the author of the book Dying for a Paycheck, how modern management harms employee health and company performance and what we can do about it. He is a professor of organizational behavior at Stanford Graduate School of Business and has co-authored or authored many, many books. Um, Jeffrey, I guess I look at it, too, that um, we – it's almost like I feel like we live in a world where you can get a job however you want to get it. There's so many different ways to work. Is this going is this new kind of model of um, working, doing online and, and working out from home? Is this going to change any of these factors of um, stress and health related issues that we feel at work?
2: Well, I think the new the new ways of working probably make it all worse. Does it? So the gig economy, there's various estimates of the percentage of people working in this kind of um, irregular or non-regular arrangements, um, and that, of course, means uh, means uh, means economic insecurity is higher because you don't know what your salary is going to be a uh, one minute to, uh, to the next. Uh, you don't know what your hours are going to be. Um, so that I think will make life worse uh, when you're a freelancer. Uh, not necessarily working from home, but from home. But when you're a freelancer, you don't have access to unemployment comp- or you know, workers' compensation benefits, and probably no access to retirement or medical care uh, benefits either. So, therefore, you're going to have more financial stress from that as well. So, the the new economy looks to me um, not to make, be making things
0: worse rather than better. Mm. Do is this something that the organization? needs to fix? Is is this something that just the individual needs to start paying attention to or is it I guess it's the answer of all of us?
2: Yes, I think that's And
0: exactly government right. I guess too.
2: That's it. No, I think that's exactly right.
0: So individuals
2: when individuals pick their jobs, they need to um they need they, they need to take into account the psychosocial effects of those jobs on their both physical and mental health, uh, companies should certainly try to do something and understand that when human beings go, go to work for them in the morning, um, they have really entrusted their psychological and physical well-being to the organization. The organization ought to take that responsibility seriously and be good stewards of people's well-being. And if governments want to control the healthcare care cost crisis, which is, by the way, occurring just not in the United States but around the world, then they need to look to the work environment as one, not the only, but certainly one important source of the uh, rise
0: in healthcare costs. Hmm. It is interesting, too. I've seen even just around BYU campus and here at BYU Broadcasting, we have more and more activities for wellness. Uh, you know, you know, we just had a demonstration for making green smoothies, everything they can do, it seems like, to get us to meditate, to exercise, to be healthy. And so it seems like some are taking it seriously, but I guess simultaneously, though, too, they may not be looking at the other systems and structures that create stress.
2: That's exactly right. And, you know, um, so there are many organizations, Stanford is certainly one, and many of the large employers, I think about 70 or 80% of them, maybe even higher percentage now, have various health and wellness programs which focus on individual behaviors. But, again, there's an the enormous body of epidemiological research that suggests that eating habits, uh, exercise, smoking, drinking, and uh, taking drugs are all related to the uh, people's work environments and the stress that they're facing. There was a wonderful article in the New York Times by a psychiatrist who's written a book about addiction, and he says, the the quote I love, he says, they call it comfort food for a reason. (laughs) So when you are stressed, you are more likely, you know, to eat uh, stuff that's high in fat and sugar, and you're more likely to smoke more, which has been demonstrated you're more likely to drink more, which has also been empirically demonstrated literally for decades. Oh, yeah. So... So I think, with respect to the programs that you're talking about, um, I think prevention is better than remediation it's more cost effective and probably more effective period right. so instead of giving people ways of overcoming the effects of stress, you're better off just preventing the stress
0: and also with when we see that the the fact that we're going to have to retire later in life, uh, baby we're living longer, baby boomers are going to be a massive part of our um, our work force for a while and Uh, that kind of that's a scary idea that you're going to have to work longer but also more stressed
2: Yep, I think that's exactly right but of course this is not true for every company there are some companies Patagonia being one and you know SAS Institute which is famous for their family-friendly work policies and having a chief health officer for another which is the largest privately owned software company in the world I mean there are obviously companies that are taking their responsibilities to their employees seriously and and understand the costs of of, of making people ill, but but there aren't enough of them.
0: Hmm. If we had a magic wand and could give it to you, what Jeffrey, what would you, where would you start? What would you do to make it all better?
2: Probably, so I, I mean, it's hard to know how to make it all better, <laughs> but I I think I would probably begin by um, by trying to get both human resource professionals and senior executives to understand the magnitude of the problem the pervasiveness of the problem this is not just something that applies to blue collar workers you know people working in mines or construction sites or on oil rigs that this is this is really a, a very very pervasive problem and to this first, I think we need to understand how big this is and the magnitude and one of the things I would urge organizations to do, particularly if they 're large and self insured is to measure there are two simple measures that can indicate whether or not um, you know your workplace is toxic. One is a single-item, self-reported measure of health. This measure, you know, basically how healthy are you on a five-point scale, has been shown to prospectively predict uh, mortality and morbidity, even when you control for people's current health status and various biomarkers. And this uh, this prediction is predictive value holds across various subpopulations, the, uh, the elderly, the young, um, uh, various ethnic groups as well. So you can, you know, everybody's doing surveys, add that single question to the survey and hold people accountable for those results. The, the second thing you can measure is you can go ask your benefits administrator, you know, what is our norm by age and gender? Uh, what is our use of um, population? Use of working for the organization, our use of um, antidepressants, ADHD drugs, various psychotropic drugs. Because it's it's kind of funny, but it isn't. Um, you know, when, when, when people are stressed, they are going to probably medicate or they're going to self-medicate themselves through smoking, drinking and drug taking. But they're also going to medicate themselves by going to their pharmacy. Mm. And so if you look at the percentage of people you know, using antidepressants, that might tell you something about whether or not you're running a decent workplace or
0: not. No, absolutely. Does um, I, I guess, too, as, as uh, you look at this, this is something that we need to get understanding into the current workplace. Do you see at Stanford and other like MBA programs? And I mean, I know you're in organizational development and leadership. Is this being talked about more uh, in the MBAs that are going out? Nope, not at all. Oh. So, yeah, so the future, <laughs> the future's not necessarily lined up too well then, is it?
2: No and and that's frankly, you know, that's frankly one of the reasons I wrote this book because, you know, I'm, and one of my endorsers, I think it was Tom Rath, who's a mm, yeah. Wall Street Journal best-selling author, Tom Rath Said to me after he read the book, and he's been a big supporter and a fan, he said, You know, he says it's a wonderful book. He was happy to do a very nice endorsement. The other thing he said to me is, he, he said, I have to say, having read the book and having thought about it for a minute, you wonder why people haven't been talking about this more. So this has been. Something kind of under the radar, yeah. something that's kind of in the air, but people don't really, I think, appreciate the seriousness of the problem. So one of the reasons why I wrote this is to try to pull, to, pull together in one place stories and data to get to, to kind of wake people up to what's going on.
0: Yeah, it's almost like we're numb. We're so numb, we, we know something's weird, but we don't know necessarily where it's coming from, and we just numb out. Yep,
2: and, and I think the numb is a very nice Phrase The other, I think, related to numb, and maybe it's the same thing, or maybe it's a different aspect of it, people believe that, that this is necessary. Mm. So I've had people say to me, well, you know, stress is a normal part of 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 modern workplaces there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. That is that is factually untrue. You can see within each industry there are better and worse places, you know, in software there are better and worse places, in health insurance there are mm. better and worse places, in the airline industry there in, in the retail industries there's better and worse places and many of the better places are obviously more profitable because they have lower turnover and healthier work workforces. So this idea mm that that we have to that this is the the price that we have to pay for competing in a modern economy is basically making people sick and killing them is
0: just incorrect no that is and that's that's a great that's a great point and a great place i think to leave it because jeffrey this is this is choice this is agency this is about uh who we are and and we've got to start making some decisions and pushing back and maybe going more aggressively after the good jobs, the places that do make us healthier. Jeffrey Pfeffer's is his name, uh, professor of organizational behavior at Stanford Graduate School of Business and also, again, author of the book Dying for a Paycheck, How Modern Management Harms Employee Health and Company Performance and What We Can Do About It. Thank you very much, Jeffrey, and all of us. Let's, let's pick up our games. If we're a manager, let's create a healthier workplace for our people. If And let's just push back a little bit. Push back to get some life back and to be a little healthier. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life.
2: What's the matter with you, boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? <laughs> because life
0: doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back. Uh, you know, could you ever be accused of being a clingy partner? Are you just too unwilling to let go of your loved one, your your significant other, your uh, you know, your companion for life? you just too clingy there really is uh there, there's there is a an issue where some of us in our relationships when we have kind of an unsafe attachment we might end up being what's called too anxiously attached right where we are constantly wondering where our partner is why are you here why aren't you here why aren't you uh you know why haven't you called me and and we become a little too needy a little too stuck uh on On each other now, right? It's good to it's good to like each other, right? It's good to want to be with each other, but clinginess is a whole different ballgame. In fact, here are some questions for you. Uh, I put together a little uh, quiz called the clinginess quiz. Here you go. Has your partner? This is how you can identify if you might be a little bit too clingy. Has your partner expressed concerns that you're clingy or needy? Have they ever told you you just you're just a little too needy? Do you get depressed? or anxious when your partner isn't around during the day? Like, do you, do you miss them so much that you know you get a little depressed? Do you place unrealistic expectations or demands on your partner because of your concerns? Do you put like a demand, and I've had clients that have demanded that their partner text them three times a day. Do you feel like you are less valuable and or less important because your partner is more independent than you are? you know because the mere fact they want to go out and you know do something you know go golfing does that terrify you well what am i going to do all day that takes 3 hours uh, are your thoughts or and fears keeping you from focusing on other things can you not move on and go do your other work that you need to do because you're too worried about what your partner might be doing do you have a childhood history of abandonment or trust issues do you have you ever felt like your your parents maybe weren't there for you and you know, you've known for a long time that you have you just have a fear of people not being there for you. And do you suffer a strong, consistent sense of fear of losing people who are close to you? Do you worry that people might die, that people might not come back? Because if you do, you may have other issues going on, like an attachment disorder or abandonment issues. And that's where, you know what, if it's just fine, we'll work on it, right? But uh, one of the keys would be to get to the root and to go get some help. It's a perfect time to go get a counselor and let the counselor help you figure out what's going on, why are you so clingy, and what, what really is the deeper fear. Because you might think that holding on to the one you love is the key, but the tighter you grip, the more likely you are to lose the one that you love. And so We want uh, to be close to our partner. We want to show that we care. In fact, in the Bible, we even talk about you've got to cleave under your partner, right, your spouse, and unto none other. And um, I I looked up the word uh, cling and the word cleave. Listen to this. Cling means to hold fast to or adhere closely to something as by gripping or sticking in contact with it. Uh, To cleave is to adhere closely or stick and cling to remain faithful to it. And also, um, the word "cleave" is also a verb, which means to part or split. Like a meat cleaver uh, is something that s- splits um, between division lines, natural like division lines, right? So, um, to be a, to cleave unto someone means you actually do stick; you remain faithful to that person. It also means that um, at some point you don't—you've you, got to be independent enough to have your own life. You've got to be somebody that is um, strong enough to, to be able to go your on your own. And then when we come back together, life seems to be better. That's called interdependence, right? So just check it out. If you've got a little too much clinginess going on, it's time. Watch out. If you uh, stick too much, then others are going to have to pull away from you just to maintain their freedom. And you don't want that. It's actually the opposite of what you want. We'll continue the journey. More fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back. Um, Kimberly Giles is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching and the 12 Shapes Relationship System. She's a regular guest on our program. And a few months back, Kim joined us to talk to us about how to beat a victim mentality. I began the interview by asking, why wouldn't someone want to play the victim?
3: That's true. And there's a lot of benefits to playing the victim, which is why I think so many of us kind of gravitate to that. And I really think most of us learn this as a little kid because almost everybody's family, if you start crying and said, (laughs) but my life's so bad, mom and dad, you got sympathy, love and attention. And it only took once for you to figure out that, (laughs) hey, this is a winning strategy.
0: This is so good. And then if you notice, they get really dramatic too. Like they'll do a dramatic fall. My kids, I still have younger kids, but they don't do it anymore. But if we offend one of them, and he's the victim, or if he gets hurt, he'll play oh, yeah. it. He'll milk it milk for all he can. It. Yeah, yeah, it's good acting.
3: They're good at it.
0: By the way, soccer players do it too.
3: Well, soccer players are the worst.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the flop, also known as the victim. Yeah, drop.
3: rolling in pain.
0: But mentally, it's a it's a it's kind of a it's a bad position to be in, isn't it? Because if you're the victim, you, I mean, even if it's real that you've been victimized, it may not be the way you want to play it out. Well, there's
3: a cost to it. And and I want to talk some more about the benefits to yeah. it, but the, one of the big costs is loss of respect. You you can have people's sympathy or you can have their respect. You really can't have both.
0: Interesting, yeah. So So you got to know, you got to know.
3: Yeah, but what you're I going for. I think the the bigger problem Matt, is that we might have learned and we may have even milked it as a kid. But for a lot of us, it's now a subconscious program. Right. And we may be kind of pulling the victim card without realizing that we're doing it. Yeah. And, and all we know is that we're just feeling depressed or sad or upset about our life. And we don't really realize that we're using it to to get a payoff uh-huh. that does come from that kind of behavior.
0: but Yeah, but you're, you're kind of – it's a pathetic payoff because <laughs> – oh.
3: Well, and I have to be honest with you. I mean you know a little bit of my story. Yeah. I've, I've had some rough stuff in my life. Right. And so I have been able to recognize that tendency on the subconscious level with myself. And I it was really funny because I was working on this article over the weekend about victim mentality <laughs> And I just joined this gym. And at the gym, they give you a heart monitor that you wear every day. And it keeps track of how hard you're working. And so if you're working really hard, you literally get points that pop up that they keep track of to show that you're working hard. Well, my heart monitor won't work. And so I'm not getting any yeah. points.
0: You're not getting any credit for all and your I'm work. I'm
3: working so hard. <laughs> oh
0: man. It's like they're against you.
3: Well, I sat there and went, you know what? This is playing out even in my subconscious mind. I'm having this self-pity thing that I paid for this and I'm not getting any points for <laughs> all deserve my hard work. Better. And I just suddenly dawned on me yeah. that that's kind of one of the stories in my life. I try so hard and I still have these health problems. Yeah. I work so hard. I mean, so we true. can have this and really not realize it. But if you will start watching and become a little bit mindful about your behavior, one of the things I think it's powerful to watch for is, is how much do you talk about what's wrong?
0: Yeah. If you, if that's a big part of your discussion is everything that's bad. And, you know, it always is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ego martyr, don't well, you? Well,
3: you remember last year? I told you I went to this meditation retreat yeah. where I couldn't speak for ten days, and one of the main things I learned there is that a lot of the things I wanted to say were about the terrible headache that I have. And I, I, when you can't speak, you have to sit there and go, "Why would you feel the need to tell people that you have a terrible headache?" Interesting. But at the subconscious level, we vocalize a lot of what's wrong without recognizing it. And guys, this is victim mentality.
0: How but you, that's such an interesting thing. And then you I guess you did learn that a lot of what you're saying is irrelevant. It's I mean, it's you're actually doing it to get pity or attention and yeah, or so, validation and then you had and then to to deal know with people that.
3: care about me, you know? Yeah, so That's I cool. I kind of made it a goal to try to be mindful and and not vocalize complaints. I can have a headache and not have to tell anybody that I have one. There's really it's not serving me or anyone right. to make sure everybody knows that I have a headache today. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what we do.
0: It's so true and it's so subconscious. You keep saying that it's on a very subconscious level, it somehow serves us. Being a victim somehow serves us. I guess it really is we want we want credit for why we may not be delivering maybe.
3: Yes, that's one of the reasons I think we subconsciously use it as it's kind of our excuse yeah, to get out. out of things. So, you got to ask yourself, is there ever a time you might be acting the victim or telling your story in order to get sympathy love? cuz we want to feel loved and I see this a lot on yeah. social media. I'll see people post worst day ever. That's it. Tell
0: me about it, Stacy.
3: <laughs> and it really is fishing, isn't <laughs> yeah, it, for it some is, sympathy, totally. love, to make sure there's people out there that care about you. Right. Um, do you use your sad story to get people to behave the way you want them to or to do things? I hear this from a lot of people that my mom whines about her health and complains because she wants us to help her more and yeah. jump in, or she'll talk about how she has so much to do today. <laughs> and it's really about manipulating yeah, totally.
0: people. Totally. Oh, man. Yeah. I hate that.
3: Um, or do you use it as an excuse to get out of things you don't want to do or so that people won't ask you to do anything mm-hmm. more? Right.
0: I'm tapped out. <laughs> Daddy's got an aneurysm. Definitely Well, Daddy, if you had an, an aneurysm, you wouldn't be talking. No, I've got one in my head. It's killing me. Just leave me alone. <laughs> Nobody takes care of Dad when he's got an aneurysm. Oh, I, I hear this
3: a lot from... About mothers, mm-hmm. a lot of people will tell me my my mom is the master victim yeah. at using her sob story for manipulation.
0: Right, I've heard that too. I've even experienced it. or the martyr story. The martyr, they're very story. similar. Like that's fine. Nobody cares about me. It's kind of like oh yeah, you're dying for the cause. And,
3: and even sometimes we complain about how horrible we are. I'll I'm mm-hmm. just I know I'm a failure and I'm, I'm too not dumb good enough. To, yeah. And and even that is totally fishing it's for very, some yeah. validation for someone to tell you you are okay.
0: But in the end, I guess people it, it's – you're saying it's just not – that's not how you want to come about life by getting pity.
3: Well, like I said, you could have sympathy, love, but and it does respect. get you that. But people will see you as weak. They will lose respect for who you are. Yeah. So I think it's really important that we take a step back and really figure out how we want people to see us. Do we just want them to feel sorry for us? Yeah. Or do we want them to admire and respect us and see admirable qualities in us?
0: And and be intentional about it, not just falling back on some trap you learned when you were four because doing a flop worked.
3: Yeah. So we want to make sure we're choosing behavior consciously and yeah. not just letting our subconscious programming, the stuff that worked as a kid, determine our behavior as an adult.
0: No, that's way good. That's way good. So what do we start to do? So if we do notice, we tend to play the victim and we kind of like it a lot and we're really good at it.
3: Okay. The what The first do we do? thing we got to do is I want you to sit down with some paper and... And and get clear about your victim story. What is your what is your favorite victim story? What do you find yourself talking about most often? And can you identify what it is you're trying to get from it? Because it, I think if you look, you you will be able to see. Hmm. Um, and then really get down on paper what this victim role looks like to other people, what they, how they probably see you. And I, I want a really good description on paper of what me playing the victim looks like and the way people see yeah. you. I think if you have that down first, then I want you to get out another piece of paper and I want you to design who's the person you want to be. How do you want people That's to see idea. you? How do you want to come across? And I think having both of those on paper so you can see clearly your two options. Not
0: working, yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so, uh, would you like them to see you as a champion, as a warrior, as a survivor, as somebody who's strong, and and you really don't have to tell the sob story for them to know that you're going through it. Right, right. Uh, it makes a lot. It, it makes a bigger impression with people if they just see you making the best of mm-hmm. situations, focusing on the positive. So figure out what that looks like on you're, paper.
0: You're not saying deny the reality of your life. I mean, if you've been hurt or, you know, held down or pushed down or beaten down emotionally because of something or just some sickness, you're not saying deny it. You're just saying don't make your story be a pity party about that. Well, be I, about what you want to be.
3: How do you want people to see you yeah. dealing with this hard thing that you've been dished? True. Well, I I want to use the hard things that I've been through as a human achievement, as a a chance for me to get stronger, better, wiser, more loving. And I've got to kind of write that story ahead of time. Um, I had a client recently who went through some really hard situations. And I said, I want you to imagine you're old and gray at the end of your life. And you're looking back at where you are today. and, And you're seeing the next year or two. What do you want to see that you did yeah. with this hard thing? Write the story now. What do you, What do you want to see that you you know you achieved and the way you handled it? And I want literally you to write the story of the next couple of years now, so you can see this option that, that you solution,
0: have. That healthy solution. That healthy fix. Right.
3: And then I like my clients to keep those two pages kind of handy yeah. because all day, every day, those are your two options. You can be this guy. Or you yeah. can be the champion and the warrior and, and strong. That's so cool. And amazing.
0: Well, and, and simply to have designed what you want to be, you now have a play, a playbook. Otherwise, we only know the victim playbook because right. that's what we always play.
3: <laughs> so we need – We
0: need another playbook. Clearly
3: defined other option. Yeah. And I find that it that really helps on paper.
0: That is uh, Kim Giles who is, again, the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching – Teaching us how to uh, give up the victim story and the victim mentality. We all, we all could probably uh, do a little bit better in just owning it, taking on our lives, and losing the stories. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives.
4: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: I would suggest you forge more character.
4: Your guide on the side.
0: Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On
4: BYU
1: Radio. BYU Radio.
0: It's not easy. And uh, if you've ever... I mean, it's. can you imagine trying to stay healthy... Just do what you've got to do to stay healthy. But what about uh, living in a city where they make it even harder to stay healthy? And you may not even recognize that – like the the data showed that in Massachusetts, one in – there's 547 physicians for every 100,000 people. And in the south, in those five states that are struggling in the south, there's 87 physicians for every 100,000 people. It's crazy. And so at some point, it's not enough to just only tell people, you know, you just got to be disciplined. Well, you can be the disciplined one in those areas. You totally can be, by the way. Um, but uh, there are some things that, that we all need to do to be to exercise a little more discipline in our own life. So think about your life. Where do you need to pick up a little bit more discipline? Where do you need to really get your act together a little bit more? And I want you to have an idea in your head because whether it's just watching less Netflix, exercising more, um, spending more time with your family, being disciplined to put your phone away, those are all things that each and every one of us could uh, and probably should be doing, right? Um, One of the things we we might want to do too is to um, choose to focus our firepower one, one of the things I found is if I keep trying to do everything and be disciplined everywhere, I mean discipline is a limited reserve. You have so much uh, energy and ability in you to do something, and some of the research shows that the, the later in the day, the harder and harder it gets for people to actually exercise more and more discipline. It might be easier, especially if you spend an entire day having to be disciplined, not getting mad at people, not being you know angry, not having blow ups, not eating that really good lunch. If you've been exercising discipline all day, you might know you might notice that the later it gets in the day, the harder this gets. So uh, instead of having five different things that every day you're trying to exercise your discipline on, what if we could just try to become more disciplined on one thing? a day. Let's try to just use as much of our firepower as we can on that one thing. And sometimes if you may have noticed that like when you're using a garden hose, um, you put your thumb over the end of the hose and you kind of restrict it a little bit. And by restricting the hose, you can actually create a stronger stream and a more directed focus stream. That's, that's kind of what we need to do is there's power in restricting a little bit and focusing our, our uh, discipline to be able to handle something um, and, and to be able to take it on a little bit more – in a focused way you're listening to the best of the matt townsend show there's a great book by greg mckeon called essentialism another book by sean acor called the um, happiness advantage both are great books that have, that are now sharing all of the research about how to use uh, how to create positive psychology in your life how to be happier sean acor talks about a rule called the 22nd rule in his book the happiness advantage, and that rule basically uh, helps you know people that waste time get out of it. They call it activation energy. You know, it takes energy to get a project or an activity started. It's just that little spark that everyone needs to have. But you don't need to always have a ton more discipline to do it. You just need to decrease the amount of activation energy that is required to start a task. Right. So if I, for example, um. If I like watching television at night and I'm trying to stop watching television, then I need to increase the energy it would take me to watch television. So an example that Sean Acor gives is, well, what you ought to do is go put your remote control upstairs in your bedroom um, so and or the batteries upstairs in the bedroom and the remote control in your office. So if you want to watch TV, you now have to get up, walk to your office... Go all the way upstairs, get your batteries, and then put your batteries in and then come back down and watch TV. And because that's so much activation energy, you're probably less likely to do it. And the reverse is true. If you want to get something done and make sure you are accomplishing tasks easier, then you've got to figure out a way to get that activity started and going within 20 seconds. So if you wanted to watch more TV, right, then you'd want to have the remote right near you as close as you can, as easy as you can. You'd want to spend all the energy to get your four remotes converted into one universal remote. Bada boom, bada ping, you're done. So that is called the 20-second rule. And um, you don't necessarily need a ton more discipline to do that. You do just need to make sure that we are focused. And doing and making the, the what seemingly is difficult, make it a little easier to do. Uh, another thing you could do is make sure that you have routines and rely heavily on your disciplined routines. So make traditions, make habits. If you want to make it easier to run in the morning, make sure that you have a routine of having your shoes right by your bed. Maybe even go to bed and sleep in your jogging or your running clothes that you will be running in tomorrow. And then make a routine of how you're going to get up and once you've kind of turned it into a habit or a routine or a pattern, you don't need to think about it every day. It's going to – the pattern itself will operate on you. You can also evaluate your routines regularly and, and make stuff happen. There are ways, folks, that we – each and every one of us can become a lot more disciplined if that's what we're seeking after and um, or we can sit back and just keep saying it's hard. It's really hard and keep telling the story of how hard it is to exercise discipline, how hard it is to, uh, to do and be what you need to be. It's uh, – again, and I'm, this isn't coming from a guy that is a seriously disciplined person. But I, I do have habits. I do have patterns. I do have routines. And when I start to realize that all I need is about 20 seconds to get something going – Another thing is you don't even need to focus on doing the biggest thing. You could go choose what's the smallest thing I can do today to start to move my body more and exercise more. What's the least thing I can do? And if you would just go do that least thing, you would actually probably be more inclined to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So again, it doesn't have to be the biggest things in the world. Sometimes it just has to be anything and that's uh, one of the fastest keys, I think, for any of us to get uh, a little bit more disciplined. Uh, again, the two books are um, Essentialism by Greg McKeon and um, The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acorn.
4: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
0: If you didn't get a chance to see it, uh, the funeral of Barbara Bush was really an amazing, amazing thing. Especially in when you watch the present world of uh, politics... You can't quite see how any of these people can get along. And then at a funeral, you see sitting there the Carters, uh, George Bush and his wife, the Clintons, um, the Obamas and Melania Trump is there. And you just think, wow. I mean, each one of these dynasties have fought against each other. Each one of them you know did everything they could to take each other out and yet they sit there and uh show this incredible force of um of positivity of goodness some of it though i think was just barbara bush i think she was uh, an amazing person married one you know married one man had and the and basically the only man she's ever kissed um it's it's really a beautiful love story to find out how much that that they loved each other. Uh, some of the history I think we're going to find out. They were saying that Barbara Bush um, always seemed to like be taking kind of the backseat, always being quiet and 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 uh, and kind of hiding away a little bit, but really uh, very involved in some some pretty major um, decisions in the White House with both herself and her son. Um, so. It, there is incredible power in uh, in the people in our lives, and when you have a dynasty like the Bush dynasty, it couldn't have happened. And everybody said it without a mother and a and a person like Barbara Bush, very straightforward, very direct. Um, she said, though, a couple of quotes from Barbara Bush: "Never lose sight of the fact that the most important yardstick of your success will be how you treat other people, your family, friends, and coworkers, and even strangers." that you meet along the way. They were telling a story about the, um, uh, a – because she was big into literacy, big into reading and and helping um, the reading and, and literacy movement. She was talking about a, an American who was um, coming in. They were doing an event where uh, a person who had just learned to read would actually get up in a big meeting, and um, he would read the Constitution of the United States. And uh, he got there, and he was a little weirded out. He was a little afraid to have to get up there because he just barely learned to read. So Barbara Bush got up and actually asked if he could, she could read it with him. And she got up and started reading, and he would read with her, and together they were reading it. And then paragraph by paragraph, Barbara Bush just stopped reading. And then at the very end, you could see this beaming gentleman who was reading and and reading all on his own, um, basically because of some of the decisions and positions she had taken on reading, uh, and then saw a man in need and went up and helped him get through a very difficult time. So how powerful is that example? Uh, another quote is, if human beings are perceived as potentials rather than problems, as possessing strengths instead of weaknesses, as unlimited rather than, than dull and unresponsive, then they thrive and they grow to their capabilities. They thrive and they grow in their capabilities. Powerful examples. One more quote. Believe in something larger than yourself. Get involved in the big ideas of your time. Great uh, great role model. I think for all of us, great role model for being uh, a strong progressive mother uh, and a progressive wife um, and, and having a voice powerful powerful example i think to all of us and uh, i think we're grateful and and uh i'm appreciative as just a citizen for having examples like that out there in this uh, crazy culture that we now live in this is the matt townsend show helping you live longer love stronger and be more disciplined Among Americans, diabetes is more prevalent today than ever before. Obesity is at an epidemic proportion. Uh, Nearly 10% of children are thought to have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and sugar is at the root of these, all of these, and other critical society uh, um, issues, uh, food issues, health issues. We've got a lot going on, and we may have just not ever heard the actual real story behind what's going on with sugar in our lives. And so we wanted to bring in um, uh, an expert. Gary Taubes is joining us. He's an investigative science and health journalist, a co-founder of the nonprofit Nutrition Science Initiative, and is the author of The Case Against Sugar, which was published in 2016. And uh, we we wanted to bring him in to just to get the real scoop. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us today, Gary. Thanks for your time.
5: Well, thanks, Matt.
0: Talk to me about um, this. I mean, sugar, it's really weird how we kind of go through the cycle of what's really healthy for us, what's not. Sometime we thought sugar may, you know, sugar causes cavities, obviously, we thought, but then we hear counter stories, we hear it's about the fat, it's about the carbs, but uh, is is sugar healthy for us or not?
5: Well, I clearly think not, or I wouldn't have written this book. Um One of the things I try to do in this book is kind of straighten out the the dialogue we've been having with sugar for 150 years. And uh, as you noted, we've gone after a lot of different sort of dietary evils. And since the 1980s, we focused on fat as the primary evil in modern diets. And when we did it, we told industry, our government told industry to produce as many foods as low-fat foods as they could and often in order to make a food palatable after you remove the fat you do it by replacing it with sugar so we've had this message that we should be eating low-fat diets and we should be eating low-salt diets and we should be eating sugar in moderation because it's this sort of generally benign thing that makes us feel good and i've been the uh, investigative reporter working in the nutrition field for twenty years and I just thought the time had come to sort of establish what the case really was against sugar, which is that uh, regrettably, and I feel like the Grinch stealing Christmas saying this, it's got these kind of unique properties that make it the prime suspect for causing uh obesity and diabetes on a on a population wide level, by which I mean you add sugar to any Baseline diet, and it could be a vegetarian or a vegan diet, or a paleo diet, or can anything anyone's eating anywhere in the world add sugar? And within you know few decades, you have obesity and diabetes epidemics.
0: Wow, and and it's they've done. It seems like as I've read more and more of your work, I mean there has been kind of uh, almost equal to the cigarette world and companies hiding of the real research, the real data. There's been a, a it seems like a pretty intentional um, you know, a, a goal to cover up the real impact of sugar.
5: Yeah, I don't, I don't actually see, I mean, I think sugar is, as, is ultimately as harmful as cigarettes, has probably killed more people prematurely. But there's a fundamentally different situation now with the cigarette industry, the cigarette industry was stuck trying to uh, as you put it they were hiding what the what most scientists believed to be true they were insisting wasn't so there was a consensus of opinion that cigarettes cause lung cancer and cigarettes are addictive and the tobacco industry would go out and try to fund scientists to counter that message mm. um, in sugar the consensus was that that's the problem and that Dietary fat and obesity, and you get obese because you eat too much, so it's all calories. We've all heard this mantra calorie is a calorie is a calorie. So in the 1960s, when British researchers specifically started saying, look, sugar is, it's not fat we should be worried about, it sugar, um, all the sugar industry had to do, and they did it very well, was sort of launch a public relations campaign to say, no, 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 these guys are
2: quacks. Mm.
5: They're fringe food faddists, and the consensus is that we should be worried about saturated fat and how much calories of all sorts we eat. So the kind of conventional thinking on what a healthy diet was and what the cause of obesity was worked to the sugar industry's advantage and they ran with it. Mm. And I'm not sure I, you know, I often ask myself if I was in their position, what would I have done if you've got sort of 2% of the research community saying your product is dangerous and 98% thinking it's somebody else's product? I'm going to go with the 90 with the, sure. the majority. Yeah. So uh, but the end result for the American public is the world was was all potentially tragic. These obesity and diabetes epidemics.
0: Talk about um, first of all, I guess why why is research so difficult on nutrition? I mean, why is there so much confusion about whether it's fats or carbs or sugar or you know why why are, why is there so much confusion if if we can all use science?
5: Well, and so, you know, we have a system in place, for instance, with the Food and Drug Administration to determine whether food additives are toxic. So, you know, you could give them to rats and mice, and if they kill the rats and mice, that's a bad sign. Um, When we're talking about nutrition, uh, heart disease, obesity, diabetes, cancer, these are disorders that develop over decades, years to decades, and so... Uh, and you want to know what happens to people, so you, I don't really care that much whether if I feed a rat ice cream, the rat dies from it, because I rat, you know, ancestors didn't see ice cream for two million years. I'm interested in what happens when my kid eats ice cream. Mm. So you want to do, you have to do the experiments in in people, and then you have to let the experiments basically go for 10 or 20 years, and you have to have enough people so that at the end of 20 years you can see whether the kids who ate ice cream had more obesity or diabetes or cancer than the kids who didn't um, and you need tens of thousands of people to do these experiments right and so they're they're just they're exorbitantly expensive and for whatever reason um, We never made the societal investment to decide they were important enough to do. I think they can be done, and that's why I started this not-for-profit, the Nutrition Science Initiative. But they they cost tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. They're very hard to do right. They're very hard to do ethically because you're using humans as subjects. And so instead what happened in this field is there are a lot of Ways to gather lesser evidence, which is like circumstantial evidence in a legal case, and where we wouldn't use it to convict someone in a legal case, we were happy to use it or we accepted using it in the field of nutrition because it was the best we could do. Mm. So when you read the papers every day and you see the latest news, you know, if you uh, eat, get your uh, fats from vegetable oils instead of animal fats you 'll live longer what you're reading really is not an experiment that tested that idea, but the fact that health conscious people who you know use olive oil tend to live longer than non health conscious people who use uh, lard or trans fats pick your poison and and you can't really imply that from the data but because it's the best we can do. That's what our research community has
0: done for 50 years, and I'm arguing they've made some terrible mistakes Mm. in doing it. Talk to us about what the data actually says. So overall, when it comes to sugar, what is its impact? Why is it so negative? What does it do to us that is so dangerous?
5: Well, so the argument I'm making in the book there, the observation we're trying to explain, the crime that's been committed, is these obesity and diabetes epidemics that show up everywhere in the world and i mean it's it's a, the world health organization director recently called it as slow motion tragedies mm. and they occur after any population starts goes from their traditional diet to the western diet so the question is, what is it about the Western diet and lifestyle that's causing it? You know, and we often, in in China, people like to blame it on on the KFC franchises because they're springing up by the thousands. But then you say, well, what is it about KFC? And I'm arguing, again, that everywhere this happens, the first thing that changes in the diet is they start consuming a lot more sugar and then, Liquid sugars, you know, sugary beverages. Uh, companies like Coca Cola have made it their sort of purpose of existence to get Coca Cola to every individual in the world, regardless of where they are. And so, on up, when you think of it as a crime being committed, sugar is always at the scene of the crime. Mm. And then the actual physiological problem, particularly with obesity and diabetes, is a condition called insulin resistance or. Uh, dysregulated insulin signaling and while we secrete this hormone insulin from our pancreas the insulin resistance seems to start in the liver with the accumulation of fat in liver cells and it turns out that half of a sugar molecule is a carbohydrate called fructose that's what makes it sweet and we metabolize that fructose in our liver and our liver you know throughout human history saw tiny bits of tiny amounts of fructose a few months a year in fruit when it ripened, mm. and that's what it can deal with you could think of it as being designed to deal with small amounts of fructose a few months a year and then now what we do is we dump fructose on it all day long in these massive amounts and we do it quickly and what's you know well known in experiments since the sixties is that when when livers are overloaded with fructose, they turn it into fat. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, sugar is at the scene of the crime in the human body when this condition occurs. And that's basically the argument I'm making is you've got more than enough uh, evidence, both worldwide and physiologically, to implicate sugar, and we have to really start paying attention to this idea that it's, it's toxic, but toxic on a, on a level, on a... You know, over years to decades, not mm. toxic. You know, as the chemical we give a rat, and the rat keels over.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, it's over time. Uh, again, we're speaking with Gary Tobbs, who is the author of the book "The Case Against Sugar," and uh, Gary is an investigative science and health journalist, also the co-founder of the nonprofit Nutrition Science Initiative, and is. Um, is I, I think it's fascinating, Gary, how you put this together as a as a real case, as if like you were. Uh, inve- like a police officer investigating the crime of, of you know, sugar. And you've, uh, you've put it together as a case. So would we have enough evidence uh, to convict th- sugar?
5: And, and the answer is, despite everything I've said, no. Hmm. You have enough to indict. You have copious circumstantial evidence. What you need to say beyond a shadow of a doubt. So the question ultimately comes down to, is there something uniquely toxic about sugar that causes these diseases just as cigarettes cause lung cancer and or is it just that we like it so much that we consume too many calories of it and that contributes to making us fat and that's a question you actually can't answer Um, so when we talk about smoking we don't we never say well smoking too many cigarettes causes lung cancer right so you should smoke in moderation Right because we're confident that the cigarettes cause lung cancer. End of story. You tell people not to smoke. In sugar, you could still say, well, eating too much sugar, and this has been the message for 50 years, eating too much sugar contributes to obesity, and obesity contributes to diabetes, and so eat it in moderation. And if I were a good lawyer or the sugar industry had a good lawyer, they could easily get that. The jury to decide that that's likely enough to acquit, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm arguing that. Well, first of all, we can do the studies. We, you know, we should do the studies. The sugar industry should want to see the studies done because they may be killing people. And if you did those studies, I'm arguing, I'm pretty confident what you'd see. But I'm, you know, I'm the prosecuting attorney. Yeah.
0: So, uh, and you also yeah. bring up the fact that science. Has science been complicit in kind of the confusion or the misunderstanding because they were also being subsidized – many science scientists were being subsidized by food manufacturers?
5: Yeah, well, when the field nutrition department started in the U.S., uh, beginning at uh, – the first one was at Harvard in the early 40s. Uh, the idea was always that the industry would work closely with these nutrition departments because the nutrition departments were basically generating students who would go off to work with industry. It wasn't until the late 60s, with Ralph Nader, that uh, this started to be seen as an unholy partnership in which industry was, you know, giving money to these departments to influence what they concluded. Um, but clearly, the industry was taking advantage of. The bad science these researchers were putting out, and it was bad, and then, you know, helping them pay them to communicate what they believed. Um, So again, in that sense, there was a there was a sort of unholy alliance between the two. But it starts with the bad scientists. If the scientists had gotten the right answer in the '60s, the sugar industry would have figured out a way to deal with it, just as the dairy and uh, you know meat industry figured out how to deal with the saturated fat message, which I think was also wrong um, ultimately, the argument is you know we don't need when we talk about a conviction or an acquittal we're talking about do we have enough information do we have enough evidence to regulate to tax sugary beverages and uh you know, I'm relatively agnostic about that. But I the argument I'm making in the book is we have enough information for you, for individuals and then parents and families to decide are they gonna consume this stuff in anything like the amounts we've been doing. And they can experiment for themselves. They can give up sugar and sugary beverages. This is a good thing about nutrition. We could do these you know, self experiments. So I'm gonna give it up for a month and see how I feel. Mm. And see if my weight improves, and if I feel better, and my weight improves, then I don't have, I don't need fancy scientists to tell me whether it's harmful or not. Yeah, um, I might need psychiatrists to tell me whether or not I miss it enough, <laughs> right? If it's worth it, but.
0: But one of the things you bring up, and um, maybe this can we can wrap it up on this is, I mean, give us some guidelines. What should we? what are your recommendations? Because also sugar is in everything now, right? Any processed food probably has sugar added to it. So what, how do we go about doing that test, pulling off of sugar? And apparently fructose is, is, uh, is, is as damaging as sucrose, I guess. And what, what are your recommendations?
5: Well, a lot of it is common sense. You can get rid of most of the sugar in your diet by avoiding the obvious sources of sugar, which are sweets, sugary cereals, candies, and sugary beverages, and that includes fruit juice, because even the problem is even though fruit juice comes from fruit and the sugars are more naturally occurring, it's still the same sugars, and you're still inflicting the same damage on your liver. It's like the equivalent difference between hitting your liver with a you know, a branch of a tree, or hitting it with a baseball bat. Mm. The wood's the same one way or the other, and the effect's going to be the same. Um, I, when I talk to my family and my wife, I say there's one item on the food labels, you know, the the the, the nutrient labels on products. That uh, just look at the sugar con. Well, look at the sugar content, and look at the portion size. Because sometimes what they do is they make portion size. You'll buy a some food in a, in a box or a bag, and it'll say there's only seven grams of sugar in it, which seems relatively few. It's about a quarter of the sugar in a can of Coca-Cola. But then you find out that the, the, they're talking about a portion size that's tiny also. A uh, classic thing is these little sort of 100-calorie yogurts that you can buy at the stores and give to your kids for school lunches, and they look so healthy, and they're they're... Half the calories are from sugar, mm. even though they're they 're effectively candy with a little bit of yogurt around <laughs> it to give it the veneer of health so uh, my advice starts with this looking getting rid of the obvious sources of sugar, and they 're the things unfortunately that we crave so it 's like telling a smoker who craves cigarettes well if you want to be healthy, you start with getting rid of the cigarettes, and it 's a struggle and it, I was a smoker, so I I know what that was like, yeah. but ultimately you get to the point where you, you are happier and, and healthier and you no longer miss it. And that's the only thing I, you know, that what you hold out for.
0: Well, Gary, I appreciate it. It's, um, it is. It's, it's quite a, an uphill climb, but I appreciate that at least we're getting some of the facts right. Uh, Gary Tobbs is his name, and the name of the book is The Case Against Sugar. Um, look it up, check it out, and see. Um, let's just start learning. Let's just not assume and take advice from you know manufacturers that have a vested interest and, and growers that have a vested interest to just sell more sugar. We know our heart tells us what's right. We just got to get a little more information inside. We'll continue the journey folks doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back. You know, um, sometimes when you're married, you might have a spouse that embarrasses you. Can you believe that? My, uh, My wife does. And so one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit is... What to do when you have a spouse that does embarrass you? First thing I would suggest is identify your real source of embarrassment. What is causing the embarrassment for you? You know, because op- many times opposites may attract. Many uh, married couples have experienced the embarrassment of uh, just the differences of their partner. And to improve these situations, we have to figure out what is the real source of embarrassment, it, it, it may not just be your partner. It may be, you know, your own history, your own experience, your own high sensitivity to certain things. You may, um, you may not. It may not be as embarrassing publicly as you make it seem, or as you feel like it is. So, but if you do have a partner that embarrasses you it's, you know, it's something we got to talk about. It's something we got to work on and maybe look at, but try to figure out what is it about your partner that's so embarrassing and why of all things is that so embarrassing to you? And you might realize it's just, it's a personal, it's a personal thing. It's, you know, you grew up in a family where you just don't do that. And that's just, that's just not proper, but you know, your, your partner does it. So Watch out for that. Another rule is anticipate the embarrassment. Sometimes you already know it's happening. You know your partner's going to do it, and um, it might simply be that you know you it might be the language they use when they're with old buddies. It might be the stories they do. It might be the embarrassing things that they're willing to do in walking strange or doing weird things um, just to create a moment of embarrassment. so anticipate it. figure out how you're going to handle it. Think it through identify instead of trying to get your partner to change, um, it might be interesting if it no longer impacted you. Would your partner have the desire to to play around with that embarrassing issue anyway? Or would they be giving it up? So anticipate it, figure out how you're going to handle it um, and and what what you're going to do about it. Maybe it's just the minute it starts getting embarrassing. You just have agreed that you're just going to walk away. Or you're going to say a phrase and the phrase may make it so that you, know, you, you aren't going to take the bait and, and let your partner play you that way anymore. Another thing you could do is just simply discuss the problem with your partner, but I'd suggest you discuss the embarrassment when the emotion is low. I wouldn't discuss it in the moment of the embarrassment, but uh, when things calm down after the embarrassment, maybe if you're anticipating embarrassing things coming up, um, discuss it when the emotion is low. That way you can actually think through the issue and, and express your opinion, talk about why it embarrasses you, make sure it's not just kind of a a style thing, that it really is something that's worth discussing Um, and discuss that, you know, you love being with your partner, but sometimes when they act this way, it feels disrespectful. It feels hurtful. It feels harmful. And um, really, sometimes you might just be able to be educating them, which would be valuable, I think, for everybody, right? But the rule would probably be discuss it when emotions are low. Once emotion is high, there's a great quote that says emotion hijacks meaning and so you probably don't want to allow just emotions to go off and, and take you over. You want to be sure that you, um, you're you managing your meaning a little bit better. And last but not least is learn together and establish some rules. Establish some, some just protocols, some etiquette. I mean there might be – part of what you might want to do about if it's so embarrassing is just express to your partner why it embarrasses you. And, and why it might actually be hurting other people. Sometimes people that do, you know, jo- embarrassing things or, or uh, you know, they're, they're joking around in certain ways, they don't understand the impact it's having on others. And so you might have some rules that, you know, if that's the case, if you're going to act like that when you're with your friends, then maybe what we ought to do is just make the rule that I'm not going to go with you. <laughs> And you could make a rule for it. You could make a rule that uh, there might be a code word that you use with each other that's like with my wife, sometimes when she says, Matt, seriously, when she says seriously, it, it kind of means joke's over. Quit messing around. Seriously. And so I've kind of learned that I can play to a point, but once the point is passed and she's pulling out the word seriously then it's probably time to stop so maybe set some rules um, establish some 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 understanding with each other and then maybe just accept the fact that your partner's different and they may just do things differently and and everyone's going to be a little bit different right and are you okay with that are you able to accept it and maybe don't make it be as big as it is oh that's easy for you to say. You're not being embarrassed all the time. Well, we're all growing up together. A lot of times, you just have to suffer for the pains, the insecurities, the ignorance, the insecurity, and the embarrassment of the person you chose to marry. That's kind of life. We'll continue the journey, doing what we can to help all of us live a little longer and love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, folks. Uh, you know, we have Kimberly Giles on the show regularly. She's the founder of Clarity Point Coaching, and uh, we like to pick her brain. She's a life coach, and she was on the show a few uh, – she's on the show regularly. But a while ago, she came on and talked to us about victim mentality and how to overcome it. And uh, we've played parts of it on the show before. But I, I in the interview, I, I, asked by, I, I started the interview by asking, how do we avoid blaming others for the pain that we feel?
3: And this is something we, we all yeah. learned as a kid too. We we went to our mom crying and said, Well, she made me yeah. feel bad. She hurt my feelings. <laughs> like we can't help have any control over right. it. And mom and dad kind of validated this.
0: Yes, she's evil.
3: Yes. Yeah, so this, <laughs> <laughs> this is the behavior we learned where the truth is that y- you can't be made to be upset without your participation or permission yeah. to go there.
0: Obviously, uh, I you can already have... hear people recoiling. I know. No, but she she said it, Kim. <laughs> you don't know. You don't. Know, you don't know what she said, but it was rude. And yes. you don't say rude things like that.
3: And you've never been offended like that, so you don't know yeah. how it feels. Right? I know. I hear that quite often. As a Matter of fact, Matt, every time I write this in an article, that you have control over how you feel. Everybody who's caught up in the victim role writes in and tells me that I don't understand.
0: Yeah. And And, by the way, notice they want to tell their story.
3: Of course. They've got
0: to tell their victim story (laughs) because their victim story is different. But it doesn't change the principle you're teaching.
3: Not at all. So uh, this is the bottom line, guys. We do have the power to be bulletproof. Yeah. To not let what other people say or do affect the way we see ourselves or feel about ourselves or our life. We have that power. The problem is that most of us don't know how to use the power, right? and we don't use it. So we just let our subconscious reactions of hurt feelings drive, and, and we don't consciously choose to process this in a healthy way. And you mentioned all the free resources on our website. We have some fantastic worksheets. I've got one called the To Be or Not to Be Upset Worksheet. Hmm. <laughs> and yeah. Literally... If you are upset, you print that off and fill it out. By the time you get to the bottom, you'll be able to see that you've got other options. Upset is one option, sure, but it's never your only one, right? So, I would encourage everybody to go get that worksheet. I think That's it's great. really, valu- really, really valuable.
0: To to be or not to be upset worksheet. Yes. Okay. The
3: to be or not to be upset. Because the truth is we really have power over deciding how we're going to feel. Oh, yeah. And you've got to understand that what other people say or do doesn't change you. It doesn't diminish you. It can't. We're talking about thoughts that exist in someone's head yeah. or words they say. They have no power whatsoever unless you give them power.
0: So so if I, if I tell the story as to why I'm in such pain and turmoil and I frame the story blaming another –
3: because all those people that hate you
0: yeah. and
1: don't like you.
0: The minute I've done that, I guess you're saying I'm in the victim role. I yes. fr- I frame myself as the victim of these big, powerful, mean people.
3: Yeah. Have, you've really made yourself powerless.
0: Yeah. That's, that's the beginning of the end because <laughs> now end. your story is you're just weak.
3: Yeah. And you have no control. You're just the victim. Mm-hmm. So if you really struggle with this and and it's a real problem in your life learning how to do that, my book – Yeah. I mean my book really gotta, teaches how to do that.
0: And they, they can – again, if you go to claritypointcoaching.com, you can get her book, Hello. It's honestly – when I think of it – and I, I don't know if I think I've told you this, but I, I – I tell people to go get the book, but it just helps you deal with every – a lot of your things you talk about are kind of subconscious thoughts, Mm -hmm. fears, issues that drive everything else. But this victim idea is a subconscious thought. It's something deep down that you don't know you're operating on, and I'm sure the book will help you. I guarantee it's tied to fear.
3: Yes, it is tied to fear. It always is. It's always about fear of loss, not having the life that you wanted to have, because these people take from you. So the book really will teach you how to get out of the fear of loss so that you won't live in the victim place. Yeah.
0: The book, by the way, Choosing Clarity is the name of the book. The name of the book. The Path to Fearlessness.
3: Now, another thing that you can do is really practice gratitude. Because huge. I have noticed any moment in my life when things are bad and I could make a list of the things that are wrong that I have to complain about, I could at that very moment make a longer list – of all the things that are right. Hmm. And, and this is the nature of life. I believe every moment of your life, you're going to have both. You're yeah. going to have things that are good and things that are bad. And the question is, what are you going to focus on? So if you find yourself in that victim mode, step back from it and start making a list of all the things you have to be grateful for that are right in your life because there will be a lot of them.
0: Yeah. I mean, and if you, and honestly, it'll be overwhelmingly positive. We just are used to looking at the negative. Absolutely. And so it feels like our life is overwhelmingly negative. It's just because you're it's discounting. That negativity yeah. bias. Yeah, you're not selecting the positive. Right. Hmm. That's a good idea.
3: Okay, so my last one is I really encourage my clients to literally change the way they see life in the universe. And the mindset that we encourage you to, to adopt is to see life as a classroom. And you are here to learn, to become wiser, stronger, better, and more loving. Yeah. And that means that every single experience that is showing up in your journey is here for that purpose, to serve your education and growth. And that includes whatever the sob story, hard things that you've been through. They are here to serve you. The universe has brought you that class with no evil intention towards you, only good. I mean, the universe is literally conspiring to help you and serve you. And this hard thing is here for that very reason. And when I was at the gym
6: and I was starting
3: to have my victim moment about how I'm not getting any points for this workout. Everybody else is getting points. As soon as I recognized, wow, this is my perfect class today. Here I'm working on an article about the victim mentality. And I'm getting this perfect experience to feel it and practice with it myself, yeah. there is no doubt that this universe knows what it's doing. It is a wise teacher. And every single thing that's coming into your life is here to serve you. To help you see that, one of the things I recommend my clients do is to sit down and see if they can name 10 positive things there you go. that have been created by you going through your victim story, whatever happened go. to you. Yeah. And I guarantee if you really look, you will be able to find 10 positives, ways that you got stronger or wiser, things that it taught you. And, and even if you can't come up with 10, if you can come up with five, you're going to see how this experience might have been your perfect classroom journey. Yeah. And as soon as you see that, you're not a victim anymore. You, you can't you, you've be. You converted it. Well, now it you have converted it you. to
0: a gift. It's a blessing. It's not just a curse. And once you've converted that, you'll have the eyes to see, the ears to hear.
3: Well, and that's what clarity is about to me is being able to see your life accurately. Yeah. And if you'll see it as a classroom and this experience was here to bless you, you will be seeing it accurately and the fear will just disappear.
0: Love that idea. That is huge. It's like you've done this before, Kim.
3: (laughs) A few times.
0: But in the end, though, what would you say to the person that says, well, Kim, there are people that are really victims.
3: Absolutely, that sure. have been victimized. Yeah, there are.
0: And in the end, they still the healthy ones that find the healthy path out. They don't find it out being a victim. No, they convert they, it to they something else. End
3: up living there. Yeah, and that's the difference. Of course, when you are victimized, you're you're going to go through yeah. all of these emotions, and you're supposed to. That's part of. The class that you're in is processing through all those emotions. But at some point, you've got to decide that keeping that victim role the rest of my life is not going to serve me.
0: So true. I
3: can grow from this and be stronger and wiser and better.
0: That was Kim Giles, president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching and one of our contributors on the show. And that's the show, folks. Uh, It's time now to turn it over to Jeffrey Liam Simpson on screen cleaning. Jeff, what's coming up on the show? It is packed. I mean, there's so much I can't even tell you about it in the minute
7: that we have left. But we're going to have Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, who's from Canada, but today he's in the studio. Oh, I love Rod. And we're going to be talking about the film Overboard, which is a remake of, you know, a little known film from the 80s with Mm. Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. You may have heard of them. (laughs) Um, And then uh, we're going to keep going on with that theme of remakes
0: and give you some that are maybe better than others. Oh, boy. You did it again, Jeffrey. Jeffrey will be up straight ahead with screen cleaning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back Monday. More fun to keep you living longer and loving stronger.
7: Morning, welcome to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson here with Cole Wissinger, as always, and we've got to start off the show today with the best piece of news ever. Cole Wissinger is official now; he is on the BYU radio staff.
1: Yay! Woo-hoo! I'm back,
7: Cole. This really is the best news of the day. So, I mean, everything after that is just not going to be as exciting.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Which is but not a not we'll a great try. way to
7: it's not a great way to start the show, by the way. But uh, it is what it is, and we're so excited to have you back, Cole. Uh, This is Screen Cleaning, and each and every week, we do our darndest to help put a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. And we're going to do just that right now by giving you a taste of what's come out in the news over the last week. First of all, I've got to talk about the new Dumbo teaser. Oh, yeah. Dumbo, the live-action version of the animated feature from way back when. It's being directed by Tim Burton.
1: Mm -hmm. And you can tell, even in just this, like— 30 seconds clips yeah. of what's going to go on. It's a Tim burton thing.
7: Yeah, and I, I will say I have not loved what he's done in the past few years, but after seeing this teaser trailer, I am thoroughly excited, which is saying a lot because I wouldn't say that Dumbo is one of my favorite Disney eh. movies of all time, but it looks beautiful. It has a great cast. Danny DeVito is in it. Michael Keaton is Those are two Tim Burton mainstays, by the way. And Disney is just the brand to get a director out of a slump. So Absolutely. So that's what Tim Burton needs. That is true. Uh, a couple of other – they're not, not trailers, but uh, a couple of other first looks at some DC movies that you should check out. First off, I'm really intrigued by this Wonder Woman 1984. Mm. This is inviting back uh, the female director from the first one, Wonder Woman, Patty Jenkins. And you get to see Chris Pine in 80s garb. <laughs> it's It looks pretty intriguing.
1: Because in case said. you thought that something might have happened at the end of the 40s with Chris Pine's character... He's back in the 80s.
7: It can happen if Marvel can do it why can't DC do something like that, right? Right. Then there uh Cole informed me that there are a bunch of first looks for the new film Aquaman coming out in December. It's kind of it seems like they should have a trailer by now if it's coming yeah, out it's, in December, it's this right?
1: December. Yeah. Wow.
7: But the big news of the day, other than the fact that Cole is back, is Incredibles 2 is in theaters today. Now, just to give you an idea of how big of a deal this is, not only has it been 14 years since the original came out.
1: Which they remind you of before the movie starts in the theaters.
7: This is the first animated wide release since Sherlock Gnomes back in March. So, Kids everywhere have been waiting for a kid's movie to watch with their parents, and parents, uh, vice versa, have been waiting for a movie to watch with their kids. But before Cole and I review Incredibles 2, we wanted to hear a pre-screening perspective from a couple of fans of the original Incredibles. I'm standing here with a couple of superhero authorities, and really kid movie authorities, and I'm curious to know, are superheroes real? Mm,
6: Yeah. No.
7: Really? How do you know they're not real?
6: Because I haven't seen any.
7: Oh, okay. What is it that superheroes do?
6: They help people if they're in trouble. Save people from bad guys.
7: I know you like superheroes. What is it that you like about them so much?
6: They have these cool powers.
7: What would your powers be if you were a superhero?
6: Hmm. Invisible. So the bad guys cannot see me. Fire.
7: Fire? What do you think you could do with that? Why would you want to have fire powers?
6: So I can burn bad guys.
7: What would your superhero name be? Mm -hmm. Would it be indecisive girl? What are you most looking forward to seeing in The Incredibles 2?
6: Their new powers. I don't know.
7: You don't know? Are you just going for the popcorn and candy? Mm Uh-huh. Yeah, the truth comes out. Okay. So there you have it. There's a before look at what these kids uh, were anticipating for Incredibles 2. In just a moment, we'll give you an after look after they've seen the film. But Cole and I both saw the film last night. And uh, although our opinions vary a little bit, which which they often and almost always do, um, we're going to, first of all, we're going to tell you a little bit about this film. Incredibles 2 picks off uh, picks up right where Incredibles 1 left off.
1: And we mean right where it left
7: oh, off. Oh, absolutely. At the end of Incredibles 1, you see this new villain emerging quite literally from beneath them uh, known as the Underminer. And so the movie starts off with them duking it out with the underminer and while they're doing that they're seen by a very wealthy man named Winston Dever who is a huge huge super uh hero fan and he thinks it's quite unfair that super villain or superheroes are illegal so he wants to do something about that. Right. So he invites Elastigirl, Mr. Incredible and Frozone to his building of uh, his place of business and he kind of pitches them an idea uh to help get them back in the spotlight help get them legal again but he thinks that the smart move pr wise is to
1: send elastigirl into action which leaves actuarially wise that's true they they take a look at all the damage that mr incredible kind of sometimes (laughs) does when he's trying to save the day and they say well elastigirl doesn't have that danger from an insurance perspective
7: right (laughs) And uh, But sending Girl back into action means that Mr. Incredibles got to stay home with their three kids. And it should be mentioned that none of the other family members are aware of Jack-Jack's special powers that the audience was clued in on at the Austin end of Incredibles. Syndrome
1: found out. That's right. But none of the actual Incredibles did.
7: And Syndrome's not exactly around to tell about it. No. Yeah. Um, Cole, here's what I loved about the movie. Okay. First off, super funny. The audience that I was with was in stitches the entire time. So clever. Some of the action sequences that they they that they concoct for this movie are just incredible. Sorry for the word use there. (laughs) How
1: many times are we going to use that during this show?
7: But there are a slew of other superheroes that have some very unique powers as well that come in handy throughout the movie. Um, and as you pointed out, Cole, they make a point at the beginning of the film, even before it starts, of having the actual cast members talk about the movie you're about to see, which I think is something we're going to see a lot of from now on because we saw it with Coco where mm-hmm. the animators uh, highlighted special scenes in the movie basically to say, look, this movie took a lot of work and we really want you to appreciate this film, and I really did. And just like Samuel L. Jackson teases at the beginning, it was worth the wait. Cole, yes. what do you think?
1: I agree. It is very good. It's not quite up to the same par as the original Credible, Incredibles, and par can be a pun as well. <laughs> That's um, true. But the. The overall story is just a little bit weaker, the villain especially. We mentioned Syndrome before. But but, don't give anything away. But the villain that they have in this movie, just from a motivation standpoint, from a foil to the hero's standpoint, is not quite as strong as what Syndrome brought in the first one.
7: I agree. And however, it's still such an enjoyable film. I will say it – there were several parts of the movie where I was thinking this is – Really dark. This is really scary. And at two points during the movie, both of my girls jumped into our arms, just terrified. So
1: you went to an earlier showing than I yes. did. Was it a lot of families in your theater? Oh, yeah.
7: It was packed to the brim with kids.
1: My my theater was a little bit later, and it was all the people that were kids back in 2004 when this first came out and are now college kids now.
7: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one thing I should mention about the movie, the reason these movies are so enjoyable And the animators and the filmmakers know this is because they focus on the family. The superhero aspect of the movie is secondary to the family dynamics. And, Cole, I think you and I had different perspectives of this film. But Uh, this
1: we can agree on. Right.
7: What I love about this film is that I could relate to it. The family is dealing with actual problems that I deal with on a (laughs) daily basis. Now, granted, my one-year-old doesn't have superpowers that puts everybody at risk. But sometimes when I'm in charge as the dad, I'm more strict. I, things have got to go right because I'm in charge and I don't want to disappoint my wife, right? And
1: maybe when I step into those shoes in a few years and become a father, I will have a new appreciation. Revisit it then, Cole. I will. I Revisit
7: promise. it then. You're not going to want to miss it is what we're really trying to say. And uh, now let's circle back with our two experts on kids' movies to see what they thought of the film. <laughs> We're back with our two authority figures on kid movies. They've seen Incredibles 2, and I'm curious to know, did you like the movie?
6: I liked it. Good.
7: (laughs) It was good. Okay. What is Incredibles 2 about?
6: This man who does this mean stuff. The mom has to go on a mission by herself.
7: Okay. And she doesn't get to take any of her family with her? Mm Mm-hmm. What did you like about it?
6: The baby had powers. And the good guy's wind.
7: Oh, spoiler alert. Okay. What do you think parents should know before they take their kids to see this movie?
6: They need to make sure it's not too scary for the little kids.
7: And how old are you?
6: Six and a half. If they forgot their purses.
7: Don't forget your purse. A lesson to parents. You know, director Steven Spielberg has suggested that superhero movies are going to go the way of the western. That's a prediction he's making. And yet, it seems like we keep coming out with more and more superhero movies. Marvel Studios has released three films in 2017. It's got three more slated for 2018. DC films, two scheduled for 2017. So, you know, maybe there's another side to that argument. And we've got somebody here today who's going to uh, who's going to give his two cents on that topic. His name is Jacob Gowans. He's been on the show before. He is an author. He is a dentist. And he is a Marvel and DC expert. In fact, he's even been on a couple of comic-con panels he he's just a really uh nerdy in the know type of guy when it comes to marvel comics wouldn't you say that's right jacob jacob i am
8: a nerd yeah oh yeah
7: okay Okay, we've got that on record now. So I'm hoping, you know, for all of us people who are not as in the know when it comes to Marvel Comics and and DC Comics, can you briefly explain to us the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well as the DC Expanded Universe, I
8: think is what they call it? Yes. So uh, the Marvel Universe is uh, all of the films plus all of the television shows that are basically interlinked with certain characters. The Marvel Universe is basically Thor, Captain America, all the Avengers, and the Guardians of the Galaxy. And it also includes the TV show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Defenders shows on Netflix. The DC Universe is only four films so far, and it's Wonder Woman, Man of Steel, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Suicide Squad. Mm Mm-hmm. So they're a little behind... Uh,
7: which – I already There'll know the answer on. to this, but which of those two universes do you prefer and why?
8: Uh, the Marvel universe is uh, possibly the greatest thing to happen in cinema in my lifetime.
7: Whoa. That is yeah. bold, sir.
8: Yes. Wow.
7: Okay. Now, why? Why is that?
8: Well, I mean, I would say there have only been a few revolutionary moments in cinema in my lifetime. Um, I would say maybe Jurassic Park, Matrix, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe are all – I would say those are three things cinematically that have actually changed cinema. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe is not just – not just because they've linked the films together so well, but because they've managed to consistently put out films that are critically an audience – approved over the i mean it's over 17 films 17 films i mean james bond couldn't do that i mean it, uh <laughs> star wars can't hasn't done that no one has done what they've done 17 films that have all been critically and audience well approved now not all of them have been perfect or, or great but all of them have been generally good to great
7: my goodness. Now, you and I have had discussions about this before. And this this category of films that I'm about to mention is not in the discussion. But if I were given the choice to choose this over Marvel or DC movies, I would go with the Dark Knight trilogy by Christopher Nolan. And you've heard many of my thoughts about that. But I'll just say the reason I love that series so much is because I like films that have a definite end in mind. Because to me... They've got a beginning, middle, and end already planned, the stakes are higher, the quality is less likely to deteriorate, and it leaves you wanting more. I mean, that's why Jerry Seinfeld ended his show when he did, because he wanted to go out on top. Now, I will agree with you. I am shocked at how consistently good the MCU films have been. I think from here on out we'll refer to them as MCU films. and. I'm curious to know because you, you, you brought up a good point. You brought up uh, James Bond hasn't been able to do that and Star Wars hasn't been able to do that. Both series have changed uh, directors along the way and Marvel, the MCU films are no exception. They seem to constantly change directors and yet the the quality is pretty consistent. Why do you think – How do you how do you think they've been able to do
8: that? I would say you have to give most of the credit to Kevin Feige. He has been the – he's been like the brain of this entire thing. I mean, he came up with the idea, he executed it, um, his way. And he's, he's also slowly removed people who have kind of hindered the vision. I mean, you look at the, the thing that's most amazing about what's going on is that the films are generally getting better. Um, most of your weaker MCU films were in the earlier half. The last maybe six films that have come out have, have been, or I guess maybe even the the second half of films that have been released were generally better than the first half. So they're improving the formula, and they're also starting to now trust their directors more to make more unique films with uh, less studio interference, I think.
7: Yeah. So I don't think anybody would argue that uh, things are going incredibly well for the DC films. Why do you think they're struggling to follow the same pattern that Marvel has established?
8: I can think of maybe two or three reasons. The first one is that Kevin Feige is a comic book nerd and he was given control over this. So you have a man who's in love with the stories he's telling, you know. You know it's it's driven by love. And yes, of course they want to make money and of course they they have this they sometimes have to sacrifice uh, storytelling for the, the continuity that, that, that does happen. But generally speaking, these people, the people that are making these films are comic book nerds, the Russo brothers, uh, James Gunn. Um, these people, these are people who love what they're doing. And generally speaking, the best films have been made by people who love those characters. Uh, and DC doesn't have that. Hmm. Uh, they were, they were studio run, and it was – you know, Zack Snyder uh, is not necessarily a huge comic book guy. And so you have you have that, but that's, that's one reason. And I think second is that they tried to copy Marvel, but they wanted to catch up too quickly. Like they didn't – if they had wanted to copy Marvel's formula of saying let's introduce four or five standalone films and then do a team-up movie, that might have worked better than they did Man of Steel – Man of Steel didn't do so well. And so rather than rather than looking at, OK, what didn't work there? They just threw another big character on top of it and tried to make that work. And again, it, it, it they, they just never built that foundation of characters to to continue building and spreading like Marvel's done.
7: And now it seems like they're trying to change their game plan a little bit. And I read an article about this. You read it, too. And it's To me, it's super confusing the direction they're taking this in because it seems like they're saying, "Okay, we're going to establish this extended universe, but, you know, we're not going to try to pile everybody into one movie. But then also we're going to do these other films that aren't a part of the universe with different actors portraying the same characters. To me, it's just super confusing. And I wonder if it's going to work out for them.
8: Yeah, it's it's a huge gamble. I mean, so, some things that I've noticed is number one is that they're trying to go the comedy route now with the Justice League. They brought in Joss Whedon because of the whole thing that happened with Zack Snyder and his family, which you know is really tragic. Yeah. But they 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 brought in Joss Whedon, and he's supposed to be like kind of humoring up the Justice League, which you know, truthfully, like I don't think that that's necessarily going to work well for them. I mean, everyone would welcome some humor, but I mean, we don't need another comic book universe that's that one of the main drives of it is the comedy marvel's done a really good job striking that balance and i think that the justice league should focus more on like issues that, i mean they can almost be like a metaphor this gods like how how do gods mingle with men kind of a the morality of what they the powers that they have you know what i mean because the, yeah. the dc characters are so much more powerful than the marvel characters um so I don't think they're going to strike the right tone with that.
7: Well, you mentioned Joss Whedon. He seemed to do quite well uh, for one of the phases of the Marvel films. Do you think having him work on the, the DC films, do you think that's going to help them go in the right direction?
8: I, I don't know. Um, they I haven't seen any reviews coming out for the film yet. That's always a uh, interesting sign. You know, Yeah, uh, it's... It's hard to say. I mean, it it could be one of those situations where the film feels really uneven because you have Zack Snyder's fingerprints on it and then you have Joss Whedon's fingerprints on it. It could be that kind of situation or maybe maybe it'll be pretty good. I mean, who knows? I just when when we had when we had Marvel's The Avengers, almost all the characters had been introduced and you knew them by then. We don't really know the Flash. We don't know Aquaman. We don't know Cyborg. Um and so it's going to be it's going to be kind of a tough sell to introduce all these new characters and and still, you know, push forward the narrative of the story. And it's and apparently the movie's not even that long. It's it's the shortest DCU movie of that universe yet. Interesting.
7: So, in the few minutes that we have left of the the interview part, I was hoping that you and I could share our top 5 uh, MCU films and I'll okay. go I'll go first real quick. And uh, I'm sure your picks are going to be way different from mine, as we uh, often disagree on these types of films. So in I'll go from five down to one. The okay. My number five pick is the most recent one that I've seen, which is Thor Ragnarok. And I know this really ruffled Cole's feathers, uh, and I think he's in there right now just pulling out his hair because – I was okay with the fact that, yeah, all the comedy may have been out of character for pretty much all of these characters, but I enjoyed the fact that it was just all about fun, and there was some really good banter in it, which is hard to pull off. And uh, for me at this point, I'm not really—I'm just going into these films looking to be entertained, because they've already established that they're not going to— cater to my preferences which i'll get to here in a second i just enjoyed it very colorful i love the music and you know anything with jeff goldblum is going to be a big hit my number four is ant-man one of the reasons ant-man is my number four is because i like the fact that this for the most part is a standalone film i know it includes uh what's his name falcon right. thank you cole Uh, for a brief fight scene, but it could have existed on its own. And I love that all these Marvel movies that are just so big in scale, this one decided, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're just going to tone it down. We're going to tell a simple high story. And for me, it worked. And it was really funny. Really charming leads in it, too. My number three would be The Avengers. I remember seeing that in the movie theater and being blown away by the scope of this film. And I left the film thinking, how are they going to top this film? Where are they going to go? This is just a, such a huge film. Also very funny, and Joss Whedon, as you know, is involved with that one. My number two pick would be Guardians of the Galaxy, and I actually like this movie the more I watch it. To me, it has a very uh, rebellious spirit to it. I You can't watch it without thinking of the first Star Wars film. And they the casting is so great, especially with Dave Bautista, who does oh, such a good job. His his comic timing in the film is, is wonderful. And it's just mm-hmm. such a unique film. Again, one that I wish that they would have just kept in its own franchise and not joined it up with all the other Mar- Marvel films. But there you have it. My number one pick has got to be Iron Man, though. This is the film that started it all. It's got a very rebellious spirit to it as well. And probably uh, the best ending in any of these Marvel films, and you know you you can't uh, you you have to give credit to Robert Downey Jr. who steals the show and kind of established the the pattern of the movies to follow it af- to follow after it. Just kind of this improvisational feeling to it, just a, a funny center to it by all, but also just being a good action movie. Those are my top five.
8: Okay. Uh, so we actually have two of the same films in our top five. <gasps> uh, yeah, I know. Uh, and and, you, and some of yours are actually very close to my top five. Okay. Um, but here, here here I go. So my number five is Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Hmm. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was a little flawed. But man, the heart of that film with, with, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, so I won't, but just the relationship between Yondu and Peter Quill and they, I felt like they fleshed out some more of those characters more, especially Rocket Raccoon. And, um, it, this film really tugged at the heartstrings maybe more than any of the Marvel films yet. And, uh, I mean, I was moved during the, you know, toward the end of the film and yeah. just probably by far the funniest of the films as well. Okay. Um, my fourth film is Guardians mm-hmm. Galaxy One. And uh I, I have to say that I am very glad that they are tying the Guardians films into the big Avengers Infinity War. I know you Galaxy are. <laughs> and and I do like that they're gonna go back to, you know, when Guardians of Galaxy three comes out, it'll go back to them being on their own again. So the so the rest, you know, their their next films won't um cross over. But okay. but I agree with all the points that you said. My third film is Captain America: Winter Soldier. This is probably the Marvel film that really explored some current day issues, you know, with what's the price of uh, security. Probably has the best action sequences of any of the Marvel films, with the elevator scene and also the one on one fight between Cap and Bucky. Mm-hmm. My number two film is Captain America: Civil War. I just love this movie. <laughs> I, I just love it. And and honestly, the only thing that makes it work as well as it does is the fact that we've had three Iron Man films and we've had two Captain America films before it and we see that friendship being tested and uh, just, I, I just love this movie. And then number one is Iron Man. For all the reasons that you said, I just, I love it. And I especially love uh, the first third of this film when he is in the caves with uh, his the guy that I don't remember his name, even the scientist and just the, the sacrifice that really completely changes Tony's life and sets the tone for the, sure. the Marvel films. So, okay,
7: fantastic. Well, one more quick question. Is there an yeah. end in sight for these films? Yes, there is.
8: Yes. Now I, it may not be the end that you're thinking of, but no, cause I'm they sure they'll, set, they'll recast they said, and completely.
7: reboot it and everything.
8: Yes, they will be rebooted. There'll be new characters. I think that Avengers 3 and 4 will definitely mark the end of what we know as the MCU, and it'll definitely be a turning point where they'll probably be bringing in a lot of new faces to play new characters and maybe rebooting some characters. I don't think it'll be a reboot like Daniel Craig will not be playing James Bond, but like a new person may take on the helm of Iron Man or Captain America or things like that.
7: Okay. All right. Well, fantastic. Thank you for that discussion, and, and uh, hey, I'm glad to hear I'm, that. I can that
8: talk we... about it for another hour if you want to. Yeah, <laughs> I
7: know. Well, Cole <laughs> has put together a fun trivia game for us, and I'm going to turn All things right. over to Cole to explain what's going to happen next. Cole?
1: When the world needs saving, you call superheroes. When the world needs trivia about superheroes, eh, you call these guys. It's movie man and trivia
7: guy. Only on screen clean. I, so I I'm assuming I'm the movie man and Jacob is the trivia guy.
1: That's what I had in well, my mind. Okay. Yeah. That's that's I'm a fair, fair. fair
7: assessment. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna prove us right here in a second, here, Cole.
1: So how is it gonna work? So the game will go as follows. There are multiple points to be had, and I will be keeping score, no cheating, Jeff. I've played games what? with Do- you before. <laughs> um, but I have questions of varying difficulty from both Marvel and DC films uh, and and their respective universes. And so as we go, each question will demand a little bit more of you. So, for example, in the first round, uh, Jeff, I'll be giving you a question regarding the DC world. Mm. And I'll only need one answer out of you. All right. But in the next round... I'll need three answers out of you for an opportunity for three points, up to three points.
7: I thought maybe you were referring to the fact that I give, like, ten answers, hoping one of them is right.
1: Not quite. (laughs) There's the one-point category, the three-point category, the five-point category, and then the unlimited category. Ooh. Okay. But we'll start at one. Let's do it. So from the D.C., universe, Jeffrey. To start us off, in 2020, we will finally be getting another edition into the Green Lantern world. We all forget about the little 2011 uh, debacle, but another movie is coming down the pike, and if you got an eagle eye in that Justice League trailer, some people may think that some Green Lanterns might be showing up in next week's Justice League, but from Green Lantern, do you know the Green Lantern Oath? (laughs) This is this is the first level? Holy cow. The The Green
7: Lantern Oath. I believe it is, I promise not to be as bad as the version with Ryan Reynolds.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not quite. Not, not good enough for a point. But... Okay, what is it? Um, well, I, I can give feel? Jacob a chance. Jacob knows it.
8: Oh, of course I do. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power, Green Lantern's light. Can we just
7: make you the new Green Lantern? You sounded (laughs) like you meant it.
8: That's awesome.
1: (laughs) Wow. Okay. All right. In the first level and from the Marvel world, though, Jacob, this is the question Uh for you. For one point, uh, you, you both said that you appreciated Iron Man and how it began everything. And Agent Coulson in that tries to introduce a little initiative a few different times, uh, and it's not until the very end that we get him to actually say the acronym version that we're more oh. familiar with. Do you know what S.H.I.E.L.D. stands for?
8: Oh, of course I do. Then tell us. It's uh, Strategic Homeland Intervention Espionage Logistics Division. <sighs>
1: Very close. So, Ah. as I've looked back in the comic books, there have been a couple different ways that they've spelled this out, and espionage has been in it before. Oh, so I'm going to give you a point. But (laughs) when Agent colson says it in Iron Man and in the MCU specifically, it is the Strategic Homeland Intervention, Enforcement, and Logistics Um, Division.
7: Whoa! Ah.
8: You know what? Uh, You're right. I think that, and I think I think I think Homeland is. You know what? You're right. Uh, I think it used to be something else besides Homeland as well. Oh no, we don't need yeah, the backstory <laughs> on this one. <laughs> there, there have been a few different
1: versions. They changed what they changed, but after round one, Jacob's got one point. No, no points for stealing here because I went a little okay. bit easy on Jeff. Yeah, uh, and then wait, that was that was easy.
7: Jeff. Oh boy. This is going to go swimmingly.
1: I just know it. But now we (laughs) flip-flop. So you got a DC question in the first one. Now you get a Marvel question. Okay. For up to three points, we've talked a lot about the Marvel Cinematic Movie Universe. Mm -hmm. But now let's bring it home. Uh, They have a lot of television properties as well. And there are three shows currently, well, that have been on ABC. For a point per show that you can name, (sighs) what are the three MCU TV shows? On network
7: TV. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Ding. Agent Carter. Ding. And all on ABC, you said?
1: All on, just the ones on ABC, yes. Just the ones on ABC.
7: Oh, uh,
1: ooh, Inhumans. Yes, with its season finale coming tonight. (laughs) Don't miss it. (laughs) Oh, I can't believe I got that right. So that's your three points. All All right. right. You ready, Jacob? I am ready. Coming from D.C., Okay. Um, we've mentioned Batman v Superman, Dawn of the Justice League, or whatever, whatever. Yes. Um, and that had a lot of different plot elements thrown into it. One of them was the death of Superman, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that comes from a comic book arc from the early 90s where, yep. after the death of Superman, four different Supermen rose up. One of them was the bad guy, Cyborg Superman. But can you, right. for up to three points, name the other three? Of course
8: I can. (laughs) Of course I can. Uh, The Eradicator, Superboy, and um, John uh, John Henry Irons, the Man of Steel.
7: Correct. Do you love how he laughed at you, Cole? Like you have got
1: to be kidding me. Were
7: you born yesterday?
8: Superman so many times. Yeah. Wow.
1: (laughs) It is the seminal DC comic book. I mean, it made a lot of money. I think everyone alive in 1993 bought that comic
8: book. That was what got me into comics. There you go.
7: Wow. I think I have glanced at a comic book once. I I, I even touched one, maybe.
1: (laughs) All right, Jeff. You ready to take on the DC universe again? Yes. Since Adam West in the 1960s... Batman has made his home in movies many, many times, uh, mm-hmm. and under five different actors. Mm-hmm. For up to five points, can you name the five men that have live-actionly played the Dark Knight?
7: And not counting Adam West, you so said, right? not since Adam okay. West. Yes, we've got Michael Keaton. One. We've got Val Kilmer. Two. We've got George Clooney. Three. Christian Bale. Four. Ben Affleck. Five points. Wow! For Mister Oh, yeah. I know my live-action Batman, but that's about it.
1: Uh, All righty. And so now to the Marvel Universe and Jacob's chance to get five points of his own. There's been big news of late that Marvel might be taking over the movie arm, or at least part of it, of 20th Century Fox, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Which means that we might get to see X-Men and the Fantastic Four join the MCU. Oh, please don't. As of today, they're not, yes! officially, but next year there is an X-Men movie coming out that has my particular interest. For up to five points, can you name the five original members of The New Mutants, the first offshoot of Chris Claremont's Uncanny X-Men in the 1980s?
8: Oh, gosh. Um... <laughs> you think you got me here. Um, magic?
1: Magic is one. Ileana Rasputin, uh, Colossus's little sister, is one of the new mutants.
8: Okay. Mm, uh, Wolfsbane?
1: Rain St. Clair, also one of the new mutants.
8: Wow. He's getting there. Um, what about uh, Polaris? No. Uh, then I don't know anymore. That's it. I got two. Right.
7: I can tell you who the actors are. I mean, The kid from Stranger Things is in it, and the girl from the movie Split by M. Night Shyamalan, she's in it too. So that girl
1: will be playing Magic, who okay. we got. The kid from Stranger Things will be playing Cannonball. Okay. Um, oh. That's Sam Guthrie from Kentucky. Can't wait to see that English actor put on another southern accent. But some other members of the New Mutants, you had Mirage and Sunspot. As well. Uh Oh, sunspot.
7: I I had a sunspot once. (laughs) I went to a doctor and cleared it right up though.
1: But Jacob did get two points out of it. Good. And so Jeff is currently leading (gasps) eight. How is that six? How is that possible? Okay. Bring it on. So now for an unlimited number of points. We've been increasing the answers up until this point, and technically it's, it's up to 17. And because... the unlimited
7: to coincide with the number of films that Marvel has put out and will put out.
1: And that's what we're getting to. So the okay. MCU is praised for many things, but it's maligned for maybe the strength of its bad guys. Mm. Uh, some people may call them even forgettable. And so, Jeff, for as many as you can name, can you name the main bad guys of the marvel movies oh my goodness there are 17 of them and i'll be ticking them off as you go i think forgettable was the
7: uh well we'll start with the most recent one there's hella i guess loki could he be considered a bad guy the bad guy of thor one yes okay um oh there's jeff bridges (laughs) i can name all the actors does that
1: count from iron man one
7: yes from iron man one um Michael Keaton was hawkeye. No. Uh hawk breath. No. Um hawk egg. No. It's got hawk in it. No. Oh boy. The vulture. Yes. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um mm, there's uh Mickey Rourke with Russian accent and Iron Man 2. But what is his name? Whiplash.
1: Yep. Yes! That counts too.
7: Yes. Okay. Iron Man Three, it's can we count the Mandarin as one
1: of them? He is he's the main guy. Even yeah. though it
7: wasn't really the Mandarin. Eh,
1: he says he's the Mandarin.
7: Okay. Uh Ben Kingsley. Um the uh the Winter Soldier.
1: Yeah, Captain America two. Kind of. It, it was Hydra and the Winter Soldier that were the yeah. bad guy.
7: Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh let's go with um Ego. In Guardians of the Galaxy 2,
1: yep. Kurt Russell, still a, I mean a lot of great actors for a lot of forgettable villains. Uh, can we can we can I call Thanos one of them or not yet? He will be in Infinity War, but he hasn't been the proper main bad guy okay. yet in a single movie. Uh, uh the the bee
7: from Ant-Man. <laughs> hmm, what's he had a yellow <laughs> costume on. Mm-hmm. Um, the Avengers, it was, gosh, I don't know. I'm going to call it there. Tick, tick, tick. All I'm right. good there. So you
1: got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Out of 17, Jeff. Hey. hey. That's a decent average. <laughs> oh, no. And there are plenty. I mean, you mentioned that Jeff Bridges was in Iron Man 1. He was Obadiah Stain, uh, the S- iron monger. Stain? It's a horrible oh,
7: name. Staying. Yeah, yep. horrible.
1: Uh, and then, if you want to find the rest of them, go to Wikipedia because there's. Um, oh, I'm going to do nine that. others that I'm, Jeff didn't get. I'm going to do that right when this is over. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. All right. <laughs> so he's, Jeff has now added seven points to his total, yes. which brings yeah. it up to fifteen. So Jacob, to catch him, you will need nine in this unlimited category. And I went truly unlimited for you. Even though the DCEU movies have been less than spectacular, the DC animated shows on television have always been fantastic. One of my personal favorites was always Justice League Unlimited. For an unlimited number of points, can you name some of those unlimited heroes that were members of the Justice League, not including the original seven? So any of the side other heroes that came to the Justice League in that television show. Ready, go.
8: Let's see. You had uh, Dove and Hawk.
1: Or Hawk Correct. and Dove.
8: Yep. Hawk and Dove. Okay. Um, let's see. You had uh, you had more Green Lanterns, I believe. You had, uh, I think, I want to say uh, Black Canary. Mm-hmm. Um, Red Tornado.
1: As many Green Lanterns as you can name. I'll give you points for them. I oh, can't wow. just... Okay.
8: You had uh, uh, Guy Gardner. Uh, I don't. I don't know if Kyle Rayner was ever a part of it, but I know that um, uh, John. Now, blanking here for a second. Yeah, here, but John Stewart was one of the originals.
1: The original. Yeah.
7: Wait a minute. He's getting points because he can name the different hues of green. Wow, <laughs> I get it. Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, Captain Adam. Hmm. I think they introduced, what's her name? Uh, z- uh, gosh. The the magical. Oh, goodness gracious. How am I. Z- Zatanna? Yep, there um, it is. I think Stargirl was in there. Um, and for was, one
1: I, more for the win
8: uh, Green Arrow. There it is. Wow.
7: <laughs> well done. Thank you, you did what we all knew you would. Ah, uh, I try. <laughs> well, Jacob Gowans, I've had some fun with you. I I hope you had a good time
8: too. Oh yeah, man, anytime.
7: <laughs> okay. Well, his name is Jacob Gallens. We're definitely going to have him back on the show because we need his know-how on this show when it comes to Marvel and DC Comics. He's the go-to guy. He's also a dentist. He's an author of several YA books, including A Tale of Light and Shadows, that series, as well as the Scion Beta series. And he's also a Marvel and DC expert. Maybe you can catch him at Comic Con next year. We're going to take a break. When we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. This is Screen Cleaning.
0: Can
1: he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead, hey there, there goes the Spider-Man.
7: It's very fitting to go into this next segment with our superhero music because we're going to be speaking with two of our favorite superheroes, Spencer and Jerem of BYU Sports Nation fame. Spencer and Jerem, what are your superhero names?
6: Superhero How do you determine names? That? Is
7: well, there formula for that? There should be. I bet you there is if you go online and, and look it up.
6: How do you formulate a superhero name?
7: Jerem, Jerem's superhero name would be the Defector. Uh, because he quit out on our softball team last year, I'm still holding on to that. By the way, you've failed to mention that I rejoined said softball. You did, team. and Spencer because
4: athletics didn't have a team.
7: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
6: Listen, Jaron pulled a LeBron James. He went to uh, he took his talents to South Beach. I was and, just tired he of retu- too many and errors. Then he returned home. Too
4: many errors. Too many. And, and, and you know what happened this year? It's still kind of bugging me. We were good in the playoffs. <laughs> We're down two. We have the bases loaded, two outs, and a guy in slow-pitch softball looks at strike three.
7: Now, when you say a guy, you mean somebody on our team yeah. who has profusely apologized yeah. for that this. Doesn't,
4: that doesn't mean I can't feel anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how do you look at strike three in slow-pitch softball? Just swing, dude.
7: Yeah. Just it swing. was pretty bad. Uh, Anyway, so obviously we're talking about superheroes because Incredibles 2 was out this weekend. Cole and I both saw it last night. I saw it with my whole family. Uh, Are you guys going to be taking your kids to see this? Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Be warned. So I interviewed my girls after seeing this film, and one of them said, you want to be careful uh, that uh, you don't take your little ones to it. You want you make sure that they know that it's really scary. And then my other daughter said that uh, remember to take your purse. I'm not sure why, but that was, I always her, take my purse. that was her warning to parents. Take your purse.
4: When my daughter gets scared or if a theme is too dramatic
7: for her, she'll go.
4: Aww.
7: And she'll just start crying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's five. My daughter is super Aww. dramatic, too. She'll say things like, I never want to watch this again. Or we were watching Jumanji and she said... I'm not just kidding. This is the best movie I've ever seen. I want to watch it every day. Yeah. So.
4: Kids are prone to hyperbole, right? Yeah.
7: Yeah. Uh, any athletes that we should know about at BYU that are you feel like have superhuman strength or Yoli, abilities?
4: Ch- Yoli Childs. Yes. Hmm. Yes.
7: Are you going to be talking about him on the show today?
4: No. We're going to be talking about Nick Emery, who is officially reinstated at the Brigham Young. Uh, the NCAA said uh, you have to sit out the first nine. For Nick, there was an investigation, so he's out for nine. Okay, we'll discuss uh, one the impact that Nick Emery can have on the team, and two what it means for him mi- missing nine games and BYU's NCAA tournament hopes. Hmm. Can BYU still make the NCAA tournament without Nick Emery
7: no. in the first nine? No. You don't think so? Oh, was that? I is this? Uh, was that rhetorical, or were you asking me? I think it was... We've been through this before. Sometimes I forget that you're you're not in the room and that you're not talking directly to me.
4: We have 52 minutes of content to fill in the next hour, but (laughs) yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Plus the teenage BYU Cougar who is playing golf at the U.S. Open. How he did on uh, day one, and his head coach was there. He'll join us uh, today to discuss how he did. Yeah, which major,
6: major... Golf star, did he tie with after round one? At Tiger Woods, a major.
7: <laughs> no, we said star. See, I'm 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 not really qualified to answer any of these questions.
4: Well, that's what we're for. We're the sports show. Thank you. Yeah.
7: Uh, anything else we should be looking forward to?
4: Uh, did you go? Was this your first show?
7: Today, our first like show in a while. Uh yes, because Cole has been away, but Cole is back. I don't know if Cole's you guys the man. heard.
6: Cole's well, the man. Cole is the reason that we're going again. Did you go to
7: an internship
4: or something, vacation? What happened?
7: No, no. He, uh, they were just, they couldn't decide suspended. what they wanted to do with him. They, I, think they were, <laughs> I think they were wondering how much, we, we know we want him back, but how much can we offer him to get him to come back? Yeah. I think that's what really was going on. So I think it was a holdout, well, really. Well, it's good to have him back, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
4: He, he didn't want to show up to uh, off-season conditioning. Let's see how it is. It's June, he's
7: like, I'm taking it off. So before we let you guys go, like I said, we've been talking about superheroes on the show today. What would your superpower be, and why?
6: My superpower, ooh, probably the ability to tra- to time travel.
7: Really? Yeah. Would you go forward or backward if Both. you could only it messes do- up oh. so many narratives? Both.
6: Yeah, I I would love the ability to time travel.
7: Wow. Jerem?
6: The Defector? (laughs)
4: Yes. (laughs) Based on a movie I saw recently, I would want to be lucky.
7: What movie did you see?
4: Let's talk coffee. Okay.
7: <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we're gonna let Spencer and Jerem uh get ready for their show that's coming up here in six minutes on Thanks, BYU Jeff. Radio. We'll talk to you guys soon. That's BYU Sports Nation coming up next. Gosh, now I'm really curious as to what movie he was watching to be lucky. This, you know, this is one that changes for me uh consistently. I don't know if – sometimes I wish I could fly and that would be my superpower. But then there are but parts so of me – But so generic. Oh, uh, yeah,
1: but it's
7: awesome. And think it's about awesome. it. You'd be
1: the one guy just flying around. Would people – could you fly at high altitudes and survive that or would you have to just fly low? Would your face be able to stand the G-forces of going fast enough to make it useful for you Whoa. at all or would you just be kind of – levitating slightly above the rest of us and walking at a
7: brisk pace. Cole, you're bursting my bubble here. You, you shouldn't overthink these things. There is part of me that feels like I would be terrified once I got up there. Mm-hmm. Um, so
1: I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm happy with who I am. There you go. Yeah. And as we learn in The Incredibles, being a parent is a heroic act as well. If done properly. <laughs> Anyway,
7: we're going to end our show, as always, with our Panning for Good segment.
0: There's good in them dire hills.
7: (laughs) The whole purpose for Panning for Good is we're looking for good among, you know, a lot of the garbage, a lot of the stuff that gets a lot of attention, but really isn't all that fantastic. It's interesting, while I was watching uh, The Incredibles 2... I just couldn't shake this feeling of I like this so much better than a lot of the other superhero movies that are live action that are out. It's different. There's so much time and effort that was put into it. 14 years. I mean, come on. But there's another film that is one of my favorite superhero movies of all time and one of my favorite comedies of all time. Cole's laughing because I'm sure, I'm sure he knows what I'm going to talk about. And I hope you love it as much as I do, Cole. And if you're listening and you have not seen it, you really owe it to yourself to go out and see this. And for a PG 13 movie, it is pretty tame compared to all of the other PG 13 movies that are put out, or PG 13 superhero movies that are put out today. Uh, not really much sexual content, not too much language, and the violence is, is really cartoonish and tame, as I said. But just listen to these characters. And you will get an idea of just how clever this film is. Also based on on a slew of comics that are less known, um, lesser known, Mr. Furious, Invisible Boy, who is only invisible when absolutely no one is watching, by the way, The Shoveler, who shovels well, he shovels very well, which is a quote from the movie. The Blue Raja, who throws knives and forks. No, he doesn't throw knives because he doesn't want to hurt anybody that bad, but he throws spoons and forks. There's the Bowler, who has her father's skull in a bowling ball and they work together. And the Sphinx, who basically just throws out really confusing sayings. Uh, You owe it to yourself to see this movie. There are a couple of others that I didn't mention, but they are trying to save the real hero who is captain amazing who is all about product placement and sponsorship and the the premise of the movie is captain amazing has put all these bad guys behind bars so there's nobody left of note to fight so he gets one of his greatest nemesis released so that he can put him behind bars again. Things don't go according to plan, and so this ragtag team of superheroes, wannabe superheroes, has to step in to save the day. That is our Panning for Good segment for today, and that is our episode of Screen Cleaning. We're here You're every Friday. you neglected to say the
1: name of the movie,
7: Jeff. Mystery it's Mystery Men. Men. <laughs> Mystery Men. Go see Mystery Men. Yes. Wow. That's why I've got you here, Cole. I'm here. And we'll be here next week. Until then, this is Screen Cleaning, signing off.